When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, 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 and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast, the podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game. Uh, Peter and I have just been rambling on for 252 episodes so far, or at least we've been on most of them anyway, Peter, and we might as well do another one. Uh, it just seems, seems the appropriate thing to do after all that time. Uh, so here we go again, and we've got back one of our old friends of the show. He's been on, I think, three times before. Uh, he's a writer, sports writer, uh, Albion fan. It's Mr. Spencer Vignes. Hello, Spence. How are you doing? Greetings, folks. Greetings, everybody out there in the wonderful world of the Albion. Yep, doing fine. Uh, I'm in Cardiff this evening, which uh, has gone back to type. It's reverted to cold, wet, autumnal type of South Wales, really, at the moment. It's been unseasonably warm of late, but uh, what with the Welsh team flying out to Qatar on the same day as the English team, they seem to have taken the weather with them. (laughs) So uh, it is It is Wales, as everyone knows it tonight, basically. Raining, manky, horrible. Oh, dear. Not that it's any better here in London, where Peter and I live. Um, I think, is it raining where you are, Peter? I think it's raining at the moment, but it's a bit, yeah, it's just dark and grey and it's a bit misty. Anyone yeah. would think it's November, wouldn't they? I know. <laughs> yeah. But you just said there's going to be a World Cup on there, Spencer. That doesn't sound right somehow. Well, this is this is the bonkers thing, isn't it? There's a World Cup coming up, so you instantly think it's T-shirt weather. And yeah. then, of course, it's been, you know, 18 degrees, 19, 20, 21, 22 in the garden of late, even in South Wales. Yeah. And squirrels get confused and things like this. So it's, uh, the squirrels aren't the only ones getting confused. I'm getting confused. <laughs> Are the squirrels following the World Cup closely then? Um, no, you know what? I don't know about where you are, and I don't know where, you know, everyone listening to this, there's not much of a buzz about this World Cup, even in South Wales. I mean, even in Wales, because it's their first since 58. Well, the first since 1958. I mean, everyone's, everyone's over the moon that Wales have qualified, you know, and England as well, but obviously, you know, with a, I've got, I've got a, a foot in both camps here, having grown up in Sussex, but, you know, with Welsh parents and having lived down here for 20 odd years. I mean, it's great that they're there, but why did it have to be this World yeah. Cup? Um, yeah. You know, the World Cup that just shouldn't be on, not there anyway, not this time of year. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe I might feel a bit different about it next Monday when things, you know, when Wales play their first games and when the games. What, what will you be doing when England play Wales? Are you, uh, Keeping a low profile. Uh, I, I, I tell you what, I hate it. I used to quite enjoy it and get a kick out of it when I was younger and, and stuff. And, uh, and England played Wales every year, of course. I'm old enough to remember like the old, you know, home nations games. And going to school in, um, in Horsham, as I did, you know, at the age of like 13, 14, anything to be different. So the fact that, you know, my folks were from Wales and I had Welsh family, it was like, yeah, support Wales is brilliant. And it was always quite handy because, of course, Wales beat England quite often back then as well. And then you think we're all going to grow up and in our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, or me now, my 50s now. I'm still in touch with most of the people, or a lot of people I was at school with. 
and people get as narky with me on the days when England play Wales as they did back then. You know, we should all know better. We should all be grown up now. You know, some of us are grandparents now, but we're not. And it all gets a bit nasty and a bit nah. So, no, I, I will want Wales to win, but I would rather, basically, they weren't in the same group. Well, hopefully they're both already qualified, having won both their matches, and it's just a case of... Yeah, I, I hope. Yeah, I hope that by yeah by the time they do play, because of course it's the you know it's the final group game for the two of them. Obviously, I hope either one or both of them are are through or out, basically by then. Um, it's yeah, it's it's. I hope there's nothing too much riding on it, but I've got a horrible feeling there will be. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, um, we'll get on to the World Cup a bit more actually later on. Um, in particular, obviously, the, the controversy around when it's on. We talk about um, T-shirt weather and expecting that sort of thing when you build up to a World Cup. This one, we've got the build up to Christmas at the same time as the World Cup. Are there going to be Christmas adverts on in between uh, sections of games on ITV? Presumably ITV have got coverage um, as well. That's going to be surreal, isn't it? Very odd. But we'll get on to that later. Or the, or the build up to Chelsea away. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Peter's home game, effectively, <laughs> just down the road, the most convenient of all League Cup fixtures. We'll be talking about that, a bunch of other Albion stuff. And of course, we'll be reviewing that game at the weekend, that absolute travesty in terms of uh, behaviour and refereeing decisions. But we didn't deserve to win the game. But uh, anyway, we'll rant about all of that um, coming up. We're also going to talk to you the timing of getting you on, particularly now, Spencer, as well as the England Wales connection, I guess, which I didn't actually think about particularly. Um, is you've got a new book out which uh, we'll be talking about um, as well Eric and Dave a lifetime of football and friendship Um, more details on what that's about uh, coming up but let's let's start with the Aston Villa game let's get on with that first of all shall we Um, now uh, I know you weren't at the game Spencer you've seen the highlights Peter and I had the displeasure of going down we we (laughs) saw the usual home games and it was pretty much usual in terms of frustration it was back to the old apparently the old system of um, not be able to put the ball in the net again, pretty much. Apart from on one occasion, we lost the game 2-1. Um, McAllister with a goal for us um, in, I think it was the 45th, 49th second. I think it was 49th second of the game, which is our fastest ever Premier League goal. I don't know if it's our fastest ever top flight goal, but that's another matter. But it wasn't to be a double from Danny Ings turning things round either side of the break, and we ended up losing 2-1. Um so just getting on to that there, I mean, first of all, in terms of the lineup, we had um, some disruption. Um, and as soon as we had that, it, it just set the ball in motion, really, for one of those, just one of those days, situations coming up. We had um, what seems to be COVID um, strike in the camp or some kind of illness. Um, so it affected the lineups. So there was two or three changes, unfortunately, had to be made. Most, probably most significantly, Mitama, who's been on fire in the last two or three games of his appearances, would have started, pretty sure he would have done. Um, and I would imagine Trossard might have started up top rather than Danny Welbeck, I suspect. Um, we ended up, anyway, with, without Mitama, he had to drop out. Um, we also lost um, Webster. And from the bench, Sarmiento was unavailable. So that affected our options coming off. So we started with Sanchez. We then had Grosh at the, on the right side, Estupinian on the left Dunk and Colwell playing um, in centre. McAllister and Caicedo ahead of that. And then we had March, Lalana, Trossard, and as I said, Welbeck. So that was the lineup. Um, well, firstly to you, Peter, because you were at the game as well. 
Um, what did you make of it, the game overall? Just from the, we'll get on to Villa's tactics later, but if we talk about, because <laughs> I'm going to get on to that in quite a bit of detail. What, what did you make of it in terms of our play, how we approached the game? Yeah. Disruption, I, you think that caused for those inj- illnesses? Well, we started like a, like a steam train, didn't we? And uh, scored within a minute. And then probably Deserby's big, big error was when Lalana had to go off only three minutes in. He brought on Enkiso rather than Gilmore that might have given him more solidity. And I kind of get where he's coming from because I assume he didn't want to break up the Casado and Callister Chuck partnership. Um, but yeah, Gilmore would have been an option. I've seen someone suggest Lamptey would have been an option for Beltman as well with Grosh being further forward. Yeah. There are, yeah, there are definitely were options there. Um, Lamptey might have been quite a good option because they kept, because Villa after about 10 minutes suddenly worked out how to play us. Having yeah. been all over the place. Because this, this injury was in the fifth minute. Yeah. So it was, it was yeah. not long after we'd scored that. And, uh, and Villa kept getting behind us. And I actually thought 50 minutes from the 10th minute onwards, Villa played really well. And they actually were a better team and deservedly equalised before half time yeah. um, with a fair enough penalty. There's it, debatable whether, whether they were going, the player was going down already, but you can't dive in like that. It's unnecessary. So, yeah. Mm. Sanchez did get a hand for the penalty, which was quite well struck. So, yeah, it didn't really. He couldn't, you know, you can't really blame him. He just, he got as much as he could. Um, and then, isn't it also the old thing about playing teams at the wrong time? You know, it's like Villa, you know, weren't up to much at the beginning of the season, and then all yeah. of a sudden, you know, it's it's you run into a team just as they're waking up or on a kind of bounce after having yeah, fired. Yeah. You yeah. just, you know, seeing Villa's, you know, latest like two or three results, you think, mm, you know, a month ago I'd have fancied us here. Today, not so sure. Because they've just been. Yeah. Although the other, the other side is we played United at a good time and West Ham and you know some teams like that. So it's it does. But Leicester definitely looking at what they're like now. Oh yeah, you win some, you lose some. Exactly yeah. when it comes. Yeah, it's good times, bad times. So think, you know they're, after they're, Leicester, they're, as you said, and United, good times. Maybe we would do this basically yeah. running into a team in a good spell. And we've got they, they actually a, quite mossy, I thought second goal. Um, but then they also hit the post just before that with a really well-worked one. So you could argue those two balance out. But then, yeah, I mean, I won't go into too much detail about their tactics, but the minute they, they went ahead, they basically just time-wasted the whole rest of the game and the reverie let them get away with it, which caused a lot of frustration in the ground. There was a lot of abuse for Chris Kavanagh, not helped by the fact that he, he missed and then Barr missed the, one of the most blatant penalties I think I've seen in a long time um, with Solly March was... Completely just basically kicked. <laughs> he didn't win the ball. The only possible reason I can think of that VAR didn't overrule it is because Mark March almost kicked the ball against um, Dean, but that doesn't count as the, you know, he still kicked him without touching the ball. He, he mm. still took March out it, just because the ball hit him and randomly hit him. Yeah, it's, it was one of the worst decisions by VAR from Jared Gillard, who was pretty poor against Arsenal following the midweek when he was, when he was actually referee. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we deserve probably deserve to draw. I don't think over the ninety minutes they deserve to win it particularly, especially with their yeah. tactics in the last half hour. Um, yeah. You could argue they deserve to be ahead after an hour, but then the way they played the last half hour, if we'd scored at least once, that would have served them right, to be yeah. honest. But maybe they earned that, you know, the right to do what they did during those closing stages and kind of try and shut the game down a little bit. We'd have probably done the same up there, particularly if we'd had a Not, not to that extent, Spencer. No, maybe. No, I know, I know. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just trying to play, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put my journalistic kind of yeah. on here and be a little bit impartial and think, well, you know, 
Who would, have, who would have game managed it? I think yeah, who would have done that. There's, whatever there's that time means. wasting and there's time wasting, and yeah, they, I know. their keeper saved the ball and then rolled around for a minute and a half to try to waste time, pretending he was injured. That's mm. one example of. Yeah, I, um, I, I think for me, I'll get onto the, the more on the time wasting in a minute, but I thought it was anti-football for me. I think it was yeah. off the scale, and when it's to that degree. Um, I, I just don't feel I've got value for money in the game. I've no, I know what you mean. There's almost that lost, bit about, you, you just want to say, come on, Billy, you're better than this. You proved yeah. it in the first 45, 50 seconds. Yeah, and that's the irony is if they carried on the way they were playing, they might well have got another goal and mm-hmm. then seen it 1-3-1 you know, or 4-1 even because we were playing pretty poorly at that point. Yeah. yeah. Going back to earlier in the game, yeah, I mean, that substitution was was key. We got the very early goal. Um Lon Arnold went down injured in the fifth minute. We um, replaced him with Enciso, as Peter mentioned, and um, it was the wrong substitution. At the time, I thought it was a curiosity because it wasn't like for like, and I, I wondered, OK, maybe we're going to shift the team around, but it just seemed we were uh, lopsided from there. From that moment on, pretty much they took control of the midfield. I think we'd gone flat as soon as we'd scored a little bit, but it, it felt like it was a pretty nondescript situation until that uh, change in the fifth minute, and then... Yeah, we we just we didn't have the balance right. It was wrong. I think Billy Gilmore should have come on in that game. Yeah. Whether he was able to do a full 90, which effectively would, was what it was going to be, I don't know. But assuming he was, then that would have been the, the change because it would have been effectively like for like you, in terms of you could put McAllister forward and that's that. Otherwise, you know, you could um, maybe make it more than one change and have someone like Enciso could have come on later and gone down down the wing somewhere. Who knows what? But I do think Billy Gilmore was the, was the right decision there. So I'd imagine behind the scenes, if not up front, Roberto's probably put his hands up and thought, OK, I probably made a mistake there. But it's early days, teasing problems. In, in um, his defence, Inkiso played really well at Arsenal, I thought. Had a really good game. Had made an impact against Chelsea. And it was in, he obviously is an attacking manager. He wants to attack. And so, I mean, it wasn't like for like in terms of the type of player they are. But in terms of playing putting someone straight into the front, the three behind the main striker, rather than moving McCallum to play, move McAllister further forward and putting someone in the central midfield to. It was more direct replacement, I suppose, from that point of view. It was like, he, you know, he kind of moved almost into, into Lallana's position. The problem was he's he's not as good on the ball. Lallana is brilliant. I think we look so much better when Lallana's fit and, and, and good. He is so, he, on, he's so good on the ball. He's so classy. And Kiso was trying some rather... Rather over the top flicks and like passes in the, in the first half in his own half, and we lost the ball a few times out of that. And that's what you know, he's 18, where he's going to do that. Um, but probably things that work in the Paraguayan league that probably needs to learn the pace of the Premier League is that it's a lot higher and people will be a lot closer to you and a lot tighter marking you. And he, yeah, and he'll learn from that as well. He'll, he'll learn from that experience and he'll become a better player for it, I think. You hope so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if he doesn't, he won't make it at Brighton, you know. If he, he doesn't, doesn't, he won't, yeah. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It is um, funny. It's, it's almost a case of a bit of an embarrassment of riches, really, at the moment. I mean, I'm, I must admit, I've got a few years on you two. Uh, in general, not just in, from an Albion point of view, but in general. And I mean, it is funny, Russ, you know, you were going through, you, you were just listing the team and who went off and who was missing for whatever reason and who came on. And you're just thinking, for those of us who remember the the like Richard Tiltman years of the like, <laughs> yes. mid to late 1980s, maybe it is just like an embarrassment of riches. We've got all these different players who can do these different things. And, you know, you just think, you know, we run through that team and you think, God, we're lucky. 
aren't we lucky a little bit? You know, and here we are moaning a little bit about this. I know it's all relative and it's yeah. you can't compare like for like, but the left side of my brain can't help doing it from the right side of my brain. Aren't <laughs> it's saying, look at the players we've got. Remember some of the rubbish we've had. The number of players we've got going to the World Cup as well. Yeah. Sorry, what was that, Pete? I missed that. The number of players we've got going to the World Cup as well, and three of them in squads who... You know, could genuinely actually challenge for it. I'd say in Trossard, Sanchez, and McAllister. You know, they're actually players who could conceivably come back with the World Cup. Yeah, it's just that's insane, absolutely yeah. insane. How many have we got going? Eight players, eight, 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 isn't it? Yeah. Most of most of the Ecuador squad. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah we've got three of them. And, and then got... Japan, we've got Matoma and Ghana, we've got Lampton, and the three Ecuadorians. Yeah, yeah. And then the three I mentioned. Yeah, and I mean, to, to be fair though, just as well, Spencer, just picking up and saying all the rubbish we've had before from Richard Tillman, I think that's very unfair. I think Richard Tillman could could hit a corner flag from twenty five yards when in on goal. You wouldn't believe, you know, he was he was a deadly accurate. Um, I was shooter. there when he scored at Barnsley. I do remember that. It must uh, have been a mistake. Collector's item. <laughs> also, I've got to say, he probably was pretty good compared to the crap we had at the late nineties. <laughs> Damien Hilton, for example, and. Uh, and was it um, Phil Neal's uh, son or whatever, Ash- Ashley Neal? Ashley Neal, yeah, 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 yeah. Bless him, bless that, him. That was a genuine. I mean, the genuine. I'm actually reading um, Bill the Bonfire again at the moment, and uh, it's actually quite yeah. a, quite a good reminder of you know, kind of even if we're uh, you know we do lose at the weekend, of how far, as you say, we've come and where we've come from and the situation that we were in at one point. I'm literally at the point where we're 12 points adrift and that sort of thing now after losing to Darlington, and it's like. Oh, it's yeah. just insane. We've insane. had worse days, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing, um, a piece, doing a piece in a match programme at the moment called Sliding Doors and, you know, about what would have happened if certain kind of things, you know, it's like like the film kind of premise and whatever. And it is the most recent, well, actually, the piece I did for the Villa programme was what would have happened if we'd have lost at Hereford. How would that have affected the future if we hadn't got that equaliser? Where would we be now? And I don't think we'd exist. I really thought, you know, what with Gillingham and everything, I think we'd have gone out of the football league. I don't think there would have been any coming back. But that's a whole. That's a. Don't get me started on that one. That's no. a. That's a different show in itself, basically. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we've got loads to talk about. I suppose we haven't got time to start talking about all that as well. But it's a really interesting concept, though, for an article that like the difference. Um, yeah. 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 And and there's untold possibilities. Yeah. What would have happened if Smith hadn't scored? What would have happened if we hadn't got that point at Hereford? What would have happened? What would have happened if if we had got Ian Wright when he came on trial for us and everything like that? You know, and we'd have got that twenty goal a year striker that we never had in the eighties at that crucial point. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Yeah, it's what a fun right. I'm having I'm having a laugh with that one. Put it that way. <laughs> what would happen if we got up at Middlesbrough? Because I wonder whether we'd have come straight back down again that like the year before yeah. instead of. It was yeah. a year too early in hindsight, probably wasn't it? Yeah, Mike Dean did us a favour. Not on purpose, that's for sure. Um, in terms of going bust, I think we might have gone bust. We would have, there would have been some kind of Phoenix club and we would have, a, a form of Brighton and Hove Albion or equivalent would have existed, I think. But that may have been later. Who knows where and what kind of capacity we would have been able to play at. Who knows? But yeah. um, anyway, we, Spencer, we are now joined by our fourth person as well. And um, so it's an introduction to you to, to him and him to you um, joining us back on the pod. Guest regular, um, it's Mr. Andy Bass. Hello, Andy. Oh, hi, Russell. Yeah, sorry I'm late. I've uh, just been 
on press deadline and all sorts of shenanigans with printers and stuff. So that's right. Hi, uh, Andy. Dodgy ads. Dodgy ads. Not no, no problem. It's quite an early start. We started with um, sort of chatting at half five quarters to six, so it's kind of an early one anyway. Um, and we, we're speaking midweek, uh, just to get Andy up to date, we've just been speaking this midweek about what happened out of the weekend on Sunday with the Villa game. We've gone through the general bits. We haven't talked about the um, penalty details in all of the detail yet, or the, or the final goal, the winner for Villa. So we're kind of up to that stage. If we steer it back onto that. So with the penalty, um, Peter, you said um, you can't really complain when Dunk's gone in, he slid in there and he's put himself into a position where you can't complain. I think what then happens is the Villa player 100% slides towards the foot and catches him. You could argue in one circumstance it isn't a penalty, but I think under the current rules, you're always likely to get that given. And I haven't got any real complaints with that at all. But what I do have a complaint with is what you've just talked about about Peter, which was about the second one, but you, you wanted to come in on this. What I was going to say was that we had warning before that. Villa had got in behind the back a couple of times before, yeah. and we didn't heed the warning. We carried the, the high line with not great deal of pace at the back, and Ings had got in a couple of times before that, and we needed to pick up on that and what you know, and maybe kind of take action, but we didn't, and that cost us the you know. I don't begin in that situation, but they got in behind us again, and. Yeah, Dunk was a bit desperate with his lunge, I think. Yeah, I think that, that probably fed into it a bit, didn't it, in terms of the, the notion of getting a bit shaky at the back. Dunk, not the fastest, and this is where I suppose if we are talking about whether Dunk should or shouldn't be in the England squads and all that sort of thing. And he should. And he should, I think. But of course then again, he should. If we're talking arguments against it, would, if you're looking at his weaknesses, it would be a tendency to go to ground a lot, which may have its... Upsides, it's downsides. Sometimes that might be an additional good thing. Other times it might be because something hasn't gone well enough beforehand or it's a bit rash for him to go down on some occasions. And pace, I guess, he's not he's not slow, slow, but he's not especially rapid. Those are probably... Not the that Maguire and Cody are that quick either, particularly. Exactly. And Mings isn't good in general, as we saw at the weekend. I mean, just got some really sloppy play from him. Got himself a really cheap booking uh, during the match as well. Um but anyway, yes, on, on the penalty thing, I think, OK, no problem at all with the with the dunk penalty. That is that is what it is. He's put himself in that position. And it was silly because it wasn't going anywhere. The touch, I guess he, he couldn't have known the exact touch that was, going, that was happening as it was unfolding. But the touch was going nowhere. Um, the threat would have gone if that exact touch had been made regardless. And, you know, it is what it is. And then uh, Ings gets the penalty. And, of course, we are horrendously bad uh, the penalty spot. Unfortunately, that's Robert Sanchez's biggest weakness is he doesn't seem to be able to ever save penalties. I think he's faced quite a few now. I feel I've been in that position on a number of occasions, live at games um, alone, let alone any other goals um, from away games elsewhere where I haven't been. And it's um, it's pretty frustrating. It was inevitable. I had absolutely zero confidence that that, that pattern of play was ever going to change in terms of saving pens. It just wasn't going to happen. But watch, then we, he'll, go to the, he'll go to the World Cup now and he'll save like a hatful, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll probably, yeah, against you know, England probably will come on or something like that for if and against England. Yeah, we'll lose on penalties to Spain and he'll be playing, yeah. He'll be so, saving them one-handed and with his back turned to the player who's <laughs> taken it. back-healing them out of the goal, yeah. While yeah. balancing kittens on his left foot and his right yeah. foot and his shoulders and... Yeah, <laughs> well, well, Andy, let's let's get you in on this. So, uh, general thoughts on the game. that The, the penalty incidents as well, because um, I, I thought it's the most ridiculous decision not to give the 
the penalty where Solly March was fouled. Um, what are your thoughts on the two penalties and the game overall? Um, I have to say, um, at, at the game, I thought I thought it was a harsh penalty on Dunk. I just thought that, but yeah, I've watched it again without my cider goggles on, and uh, really, <laughs> I can't. I'm not, I, I can't make a compelling argument as to why it was not a penalty. So yeah, I mean, I I'd be screaming for that at the other end. So I'll have to uh, take back some of my match day opinions um, on that All one. Right. <laughs> um, I just thought he just kicked it past. He had no chance of... They got a goal for something that wasn't going to be a goal. I mean, I felt that particularly strongly about the, the penalty at Wolves where, like, you know, you've given them a goal for that. Just, like, it barely... Well, I've still not seen conclusive evidence that he actually brushed Dunk's arm anyway, but maybe a minor flap of skin or a hair or something might have... <laughs> They comment on that they have in cricket, but you can see if it actually has uh, brushed his touch well, his arm on the way it, it just seems that the re- the reward for that seemed to be disproportionate to the offence. But you know, the 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 first penalty was a penalty. I'll, I will concede that. As for the second one, um, I can see why the referee in real time doesn't give it. Um, oh yeah, hundred um, percent. Given that the is not brilliant, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, I mean, a because yeah, because he's a clueless goon, but. <laughs> <laughs> but also, but yeah, you know, I think any ref in that position might it's a fifty-fifty whether they give it or not. But when it goes to VAR, it's inexcusable. I mean, March plays the ball. Dean's trying to clear it, but but he doesn't. He kicks he kicks March, and he doesn't kick the ball. It's just, it's, I don't see how on earth that is not. An infringement of the rules and regulations of association football—it's it's completely I mean, clear cut, isn't it? Yeah, there was it's an argument. Obvious, yeah. People were describing how Dean couldn't see him coming in, um, but a that's irrelevant because it doesn't matter whether he's seen it or not. The, the fact is, if you manage to nick the ball ahead and then he kicks your leg, that is a penalty. For yeah, he could have controlled it better. And secondly, I don't, I don't get the point anyway. I, I imagine he would have seen him coming in. He would have had peripheral vision. It's all going to happen pretty quickly, um, and it's a pointless argument anyway. But I do think he would have had some, re- some um, recognition of his presence, close presence. <laughs> so you know, and and that's irrelevant anyway, as you said, because he he is trying to make a play for the ball. There's no doubt about that. He's trying to kick it. But the point is, as you said, Andy, Solly March nicks it away from him, kicks it. Uh, to try and prop past him, it ends up bouncing off his standing leg. And then, as you said, um, Dean then swings his now futile swing, then goes in, connects with Solly's leg, and that's that. <laughs> as simple just, as that. Peter, it, just, it, it didn't really seem to be a tough one on the IR for yeah. them to sort out. I, I, I mean, this is the problem with VAR. It's not VAR of itself. It is the administration of it. Yeah. Um You've, you've got the perfect scenario here for VAR, um, which is that a decision understandably could be missed, yeah. a correct decision. That's exactly what VAR's there for, is, is to be able to rectify understandable mistakes or, or, or inexplicable mistakes um, and, to, and to rectify them. And there, there you've got the perfect situation where you've had a bad decision understandably made and you can spot it. Tell the ref he can have a look if he needs to have a have a look. Fine, and then he can make the decision. And I'm sure if the ref had looked at that, even Kavanagh of all refs, he's not great, would surely have seen that and recognised. Especially, there's no pressure on you not to change it when you go over to the screen because it always happens. But um, 
there's no pressure on him not to do it. And surely he can see with his own eyes what, what we all can. But then again, Jared Gillett, apparently. Well, it just, it just seems ridiculous. You know, what criteria do they use for asking the referee to review it? And not? They, like, they go along, don't they? Because, yeah, because like the, the, Wolves, the Wolves one was like, it was not clear. The, the arm was up, but you, were, you weren't sure whether it had touched the arm or deflected the flight of the ball or anything. Just because, um, just the mere fact of having his yeah. arm up the dunk. Look, if that's the criteria for you giving a penalty, then the, then the VAR shouldn't, should have just told the ref that's a penalty. Not like we've looked at it for three minutes and we're not sure. How about you have another look? Yeah. And then make a I don't understand that. And then, and then with this one, well, the referee, you know, I don't blame the referee for not giving giving it initially, but for them to say, "Oh, that's definitively not that shouldn't that doesn't need to be looked at by by the on field official," I, um, I, mean, I don't know what criteria they use. It's baffling. Yeah, no, go on, Russ. No, so I was going to. I was just going to say that Peter was itching to come back in, but I was going to make another point as well just before that, um, which is that um, I think the linesman, from what I could gather, looked to be in. Oh, is that your point? Right, Peter, yeah. over to you. What do you think? No, I was, I was, yeah, I was going to say, because I'm in the East, obviously, and the linesman there was, I mean, deserves to get some criticism as well. Yeah. Whoever, I don't actually know who it was. But yeah, he, he not only did he miss March getting kicked, he then also missed Trossard, the guy with their player all over Trossard, all over his shirt, fouling him, yeah. to give him a throw on instead. So not only did we not get a, the penalty we should have had, we also didn't get a free kick we should have had as well, after VAR didn't ignore it. They had a throw on instead. And friend of the show, Andy Bravery, also made a point um, after the match on on match day that um, wh- why the hell did it take so long to get the treatment as well? Yes, yeah. like it was they were looking at VAR for the whole three minutes or whatever it was um, at t- time it took. Oh, but it wasn't that long actually, was it? Um, and then and then the the treatment happened. Surely the player's injured, regardless of whether there's a foul or not. Yeah. <laughs> He's clearly yeah. injured because there's no point in staying down at that point. Um, yeah. It just all seems so ridiculous, so ridiculous. Spencer, sorry, I know you wanted to come back in on that. No, not really. All I was going to say is that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you 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 watch Brighton a lot, lot more than I do. You see a lot more Premier League football than than I do in the flesh now. You know, obviously living in South Wales, as I do, and working a lot on Saturdays in other sports and things like that. I mean, when I do get to watch football live, you know, what with my son playing and everything else, you know, we tend to dash down to Newport County if we've got enough time on a Saturday. You know, if a game's on and they're at home and you want to see a game, I just go there. I can't bring myself to see Cardiff City. No, 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 no. (laughs) Newport is kind of like, I never thought I'd have a second team, but Newport are the nearest thing to it, basically. So we go down there. And I tell you what, how much of a breath of fresh air it is just to watch football without VAR. Hmm. It's it's it just it's it poisoning the Premier League. And I mean, yeah, you get awful decisions in League Two and in League One. Of course you do. But it, you know, you just move on. It's like, oh, that was terrible, blah 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 blah. I have a go at the ref and you move on. And the game is just so much, you know, bizarrely faster. How can League Two be faster than the Premier League? But it is because it's not constantly stopping or things don't happen and you think, hang on a minute. The game's going to stop in a minute for four minutes while we try and fathom out, you know, this from that. And it's, ah, oh, it's just bonkers. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny to go back to the lower echelons of the football league and watch it without VAR. You just think, let's just do away with it because it's not working. Yeah. It's not the thing. I don't mind it if it solves, you know, made the big, big errors, but it seems to me it, it 
It mainly is teams to like take out, got perfectly good goals like McAllister's against Leicester for very, very minute offside where no one's complaining about it. And yeah. yet, obvious errors like the weekends, it doesn't solve. And it's like, well, hmm. what is the point of having the system if it's not going to do, well, yeah, if it's not fit for purpose? And it isn't VAR, it's the referees who run it. And Jared Gillett at the weekend wasn't fit for purpose and nor was Kavanaugh, frankly, but he wasn't necessarily at fault for this, this yeah. incident, but just the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. You can understand with the extra level of scrutiny and the higher stakes of the Premier League, you can see why it's there at that level versus not at League Two level, apart from the financial implications of running a system in League Two. But um, but there is the, uh, as you said, you've got to get those things right. If you're not getting them right, all you're doing is ruining the game or, or ca- causing problems for the game, interruptions to the game uh, for no benefit. At least yeah. those interruptions need to be for a benefit. It's just, I don't know, it's just nice at that level to watch a game and think, you know, when a goal, go- a goal goes in, not think, oh, hang on a minute, you know, yeah. All you've got to do is look at the lines and think of reasons to yeah. chalk this off. A goal goes in and 90 times, 95 times out of 100, it's, it, you know, that's it. Everyone celebrates and you go back to the centre circle and hurrah and that's it. Yeah. And it's not, you know, when you go to the Premier League, it is that feeling of, oh, hang on a minute, here we go. And everyone looks to the big screen and it's decision pending and it's like, uh, yeah. And we've, we've, we've obviously argued tirelessly about this subject, but it, it hasn't got any better. The fact that we keep talking about it tells oh. you it hasn't. And this weekend was bad. There was there was an argument about the um, uh, the game, the Tottenham game as well, wasn't there, with a, a foul on the goalkeeper um, in build up to one of their goals. I think Leeds was it Leeds they were playing. I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. Yeah, I you think know, that's this... the BBC text. I think it was the um, updates summed it up, and they were like. Oh God, VAR's going to be the centre of attention again when during the Albion game when they were saying it was a blatant penalty on March. It's like, yeah, it, it is. It's becoming more every match today becomes about VAR and what this incident was and whether VAR was right. Now, obviously, it was like that before we ever read, but at least when the referee was live, you can understand. You know, if if Kevin had not seen that live, hopefully you'd have thought the linesman might. The linesmen just don't seem to be that bothered about giving any decision now. So they mm. just don't watch. They don't. They don't involve themselves. Yeah, they're the just day, passengers, aren't they? With a flag for that, they're, they're pointless passengers, pretty much. Yeah. Aren't they? There's well, a whole issue about flagging or not for offside. Offside, isn't there? In a World Cup, or they're they're doing VARs, doing yeah. offsides like that. So once that happens, what is the point of the linesman? Exactly. Now, you're exactly. not better off having two referees, one in each half, or something like that. You could put the the savings in in costs on those extra officials being paid <clears throat> paid towards them. Um, uh, you know, the cost of the uh, the technology that's replacing them. Half yeah. the time, they, they don't even give throw-ins for every exercise who gives a throw-in. So it's like, well, yeah, they were getting decisions like that wrong on Saturday, on Sunday again as well. And they've done it countless times in both Albion games and beyond all season. Seen a number of decisions, blatantly the wrong decisions. Um, in terms of this game, what was also infuriating, particularly with this penalty incident, it came amidst and around a whole load of time-wasting <clears throat> that we just mentioned. Um all of which, of course, as Spencer said, came because they don't the right to get into that position to screw around with us through the goal as Danny Ng's second goal, which was um unfortunate goal from our point of view. Um, there were two or three errors in the build-up to that goal, and there was a bit of luck with the finish itself. Um, I think what hasn't really been discussed from people I've seen is um, the part that Solly March played in this. And I don't want to keep having to go at Solly March. He's had a good little raise in form recently. However, he still has his his weaknesses but when it came to this he he had the ball he was out on the right byline 
a fair distance out from goal, and he had a player bearing down on him from his left side who was slightly behind him, but he was at an angle to the byline. To me, that was enough space and opportunity there to knock the ball forward and run onto it or to hold the ball up and try and win a throw-in if he wanted to do that. But he checked back, and I didn't quite understand why he did that. And I think that is the source of what happened with this this goal, because he checked back, he passed it back. I think it then went to Veltman, and Veltman then passed to McAllister. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And then, of course, McAllister was caught on the ball, intercepted, and then in they go. And, of course, Ings then gets in on goal and shoots, and it goes off Colwell's um, leg, inside of his leg, uh, at an awkward angle, wrong foot's the goalie and it's in. Um, I, uh, people were looking at Sanchez thinking, what's he doing there? But it seemed obvious to me there must have been a deflection from our, our poor view of the game at the time, uh, because otherwise, why wouldn't he have gone for the ball? Um, but what, what, Andy, what did you make of that? Would you say that was fair that Solly's kind of, it started with him, didn't it? I think this was the first time that we've actually been punished for the new style of play. Because, yeah, I, have, I actually, I didn't realise, like, re-watching the highlights today, how much um, how much space there was. I just thought, how did we manage to give the ball away from this position? It did seem odd. And the old, and, but the thing was, instead of looking up the line, I think now that they've been working with Deserby, that they're just ingrained in this, this style of play playing that short pass inside, looking for the rebound pass. And the problem was like McAllister didn't have that bounce back pass option. He had to squeeze along to the side. He wasn't really prepared for it. And it just didn't work. I think mean, I think it's one of those things. And I think it's an exam an example of the work in progress that this new way of playing it out from the back has been um and to be honest we've probably been slightly fortunate not to have been caught out until this particular game because we because even though it's people have said their hearts have been in their mouths through several of the games when we've been doing this we actually have been fine we haven't actually given away um we haven't given away a goal this occasion yeah i think uh, maybe under under potter that goal probably wouldn't have happened but then he, um, I think I think we might have just been a bit more direct with the, with the clearance. But now it's quite clear that if we can if if we can do that inside, if we can do that short pass, if we can look to do that little triangle just to like, then sort of move around the mm. opponent, we will do it. And and to be honest, it, it's one of the reasons our attacks have been good since we've been managed by Deserbi. Uh, particularly against teams that, that actually want to play. I think it does make it easier for us to find space. But in this particular instance, it didn't. Ings was opportunistic. It was, and, you know, that's the sort of striker Ings is. He's a, he's, you know, he's a good 18-yard box striker. And then, as you said, I think there's still two more contributing factors after that. Dunk should have stayed on his feet, which, um, I mean, because even when he slid in, he just slid right past him. If he just slid and stayed in the way for a block, for a potential block, yeah, then Ings wouldn't have had the opportunity to shoot. So, yeah, well, you're going to have to, yeah, you know, not a good moment for Lewis there. And then, 
And then obviously, as you said, like it's quite a blatant deflection from Colwell. It just the ball just you know an inch and an inch another way, and that would have struck him a little bit fuller, and and the ball wouldn't have gone in. Um, but credit to Ings for pouncing. That's what good strikers do. Taking advantage of a slip up. You know, very much like we took advantage of a slip up for the opening goal, which I'm sure well, you exactly just... the other way around. Exactly the same players involved in the dispossession yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, David, um, not what's the name, um, Douglas Lewis, and then vice versa. I think from a coaching standpoint, you know, when the players want to, re- you know, sit down with the manager and review what happened with that goal, decision making always about which, you know, when to when to make those passes and when to boot it. Um, I think that's one thing. And then I think a chat with Lewis to say, be a bit more, maybe just give it an, another half a second to think about when you're going to go to ground or and in and, and which way you go to ground as well. Because the thing was, he just literally just, he slid straight past him. It was almost comical, actually, that, <laughs> that, that like, he was there and then he wasn't. And then suddenly there was this space for Ings to like, shoot at. And um so there's a couple of coachable moments there, which um, you know I think you know will not have passed the uh, the eyes of, of the manager and coaching staff, and the players know it as well. You know, I, they're, they're intelligent enough to realise that they made a ricket for that one, but you know we took advantage of a ricket for our, for our opening goal, so. Yeah, true. there you go. Um, going further back, there's also a little bit of blame. I, I would have said, although I thought he had a good game generally on on a Stupignon because um, he he went in too quickly and let them round the back, which then yeah. led to hitting the post. And we yeah. never quite recovered from that. We had the ball, but we never got cleared it properly, and that's what led to then the goal afterwards as well. So you could argue yeah. that they deserved the the deflection. I think, in fairness, from that point of view, because they'd already hit they'd hit the post like thirty seconds earlier or something, mm-hmm. and a really good move actually. But yeah. Stupignon kind of committed himself a bit quicker and they got round the back on, on our on our left and hmm. and that was a Wendy header wasn't it for the yeah the, I, I'd uh, given up on that to be honest when he, when he headed it I thought that was straight in yeah it looked dangerous wasn't it really dangerous move um, yeah I think there was there was a few things you can you can attribute as a fault there definitely it's it was a mistake but I guess as Andy you've alluded to it's going to happen once in a while that's definitely going to happen so uh, we have to take the rough with the smooth in that regard what I can't take uh, in any form is is the level of bad refereeing and particularly the time wasting in this game. One bit on before I got into the time wasting in a bit more ranty detail. One other incident, refereeing wise, which um, amongst a number of poor decisions Kavanagh made was for the for the well, I don't know if you can call it disallowed goal because it was blown was blown well before um, he he blasted it in um, Trossard whacked in an absolute cracker where he did the thing he, he amalgamated the two things he's done during his Albion career hitting the crossbar and scoring he'd actually done the two together for a change which which was nice um unfortunately the whistle had blown and what happened was this was before the penalty incident so it was at one all um so before the second goal as well it was at one all it may have changed the game um a ball came across to the far side, Trossard and I think it's Matty Cash are going up to the ball, for the ball together. No one else particularly near them. And if Trossard does what he does, which is to just use his body, swivel and move, hardly make any, any contact with his opponent and and basically just do him very easily uh, trick-wise, he's now in on with a free shot at goal. The whistle blows and he blasts it in. Would he have run forward and a different attempt on goal happens if that whistle hadn't have blown? Maybe, maybe not. 
either way round, we would have had a very good chance one way or the other uh, to score. Now, was it a foul? Uh, I have absolutely no idea what what he was looking at. It's it's there's no there's virtually all he does. In fact, um, I'm just looking at it now on the TV as we as we talk. They go up together. Cash puts his arms in the air, leaps. Trossard literally just turns his body. He doesn't go into Cash at all. He just turns his body on the half turn. Cash for some reason has just misjudged it, and he's just leapt in the air and then flopped to the floor. <laughs> so whether he's done it in that way to make it look like a foul or not, I don't know, but it clearly wasn't one. And then Trossard's left with the bouncing ball. Um, he's just outside the D to the left of the goal, and he just whacks it. There's, I, I think he probably um, he probably wouldn't have kicked it there, actually. I'm not sure. But either way around, he cracked one in, beaten the goalkeeper, bounced off the crossbar and in, and, of course, it's not counted um, because I, I thought it was a disgrace. And I, I think to... in fairness, I can see why Kavanagh gave that one, to be fair. I yeah, because think... he's a rubbish ref. No, I mean, that, to me, that looked like a clear foul live. What, watching that yeah, one. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, maybe you're on the east side, aren't you? Yeah, yeah we're on so the west. It looked to me like a, a pretty clear foul. Where I, it is frustrating is, for example, you know, no, when Kane, on. Kane, for example, jumped and onto Lalana, somehow Kane got the free, got it, yeah, got the, um, mm. Lalana jumped onto Kane, somehow Kane got the free kick, and it, somehow it's a penalty, another way around here, and, and the player who's jumping gets the free kick. So well, Andy, Andy, and I'm keen to get Spencer's view on this as well, Andy, in particular, um, I, I mean, we had a different view. We we're both in the West Upper, so and the referee had a different view again to either of our sides of the pitch. But isn't there a problem here? We mentioned about the, the uselessness, the growing uselessness of the linos in terms of their their role. Um, and there's things about the flagging. And if you're not going to flag for offside, I think they should just flag for offside. But everybody plays to the whistle, and the ref lets the game flow. That's what they should do there. In this incident, Andy, don't you think the referee should have let play go on? for a few seconds, um, because if, if it leads to a goal, he can then review the decision, um, or at least give himself time to think about it. Because you can let the goal go in and then blow. It yeah. would be a bit more controversial, but I think when you're denying uh, a goal with an error, that's whether you've seen, whether you believed it was a foul in the first place or not, doesn't matter. When, when you've seen it back, you've realised it's a clear error. You can't then give the goal because the goal hasn't been has been scored after the whistle, as we know from the dunk incident with West Brom and Lee Mason. Once the whistle's gone, even though I don't think um, it blew before it, it reached the line, but anyway, in that particular case. But but um, in terms of this game, shouldn't he just let the game flow for a few seconds and see how it unfolds? Well, the, the you know they make these judgments in each game. And I, I fail to see the criteria by which they make them. Hmm. I mean, I don't know what Peter's angle, angle was, but it never looked like a foul to me. Um, hmm. But but, be, but in fairness, at least the referee was decisive. So the yeah. way Trossard did boot it in, I didn't think, oh, we've been denied a goal because hmm. it was the, the whistle had gone, then he kicked it. And so there was no claims of it was a disallowed goal, but it was a disallowed goal scoring opportunity. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, he, they, he could have played on. He would have been in on goal. I think he probably would have carried it a few yards and tried to curl it into the far corner, which he may or may not have done successfully. I don't think he'd have done what he did, um, to be honest, um, if, if, if play had been allowed to go on. But hmm. on what planet is that a foul? I mean, it's just... 
Well, look at the final goal. Cash is no cash is nowhere near the ball. Yeah. The, At he, no point. He has. Uh, he is in no danger of winning that ball. He ju- he jumps for it. He doesn't get it. Trossard. He, he's going to get it. Just turn. Just literally. Just turns to the you know sideways. And what for that contact? It's just I, I don't know. I mean, and I this just, is I, where ultimately, for all the technology, VAR is flawed because at the end of the day, it's all down to perceptions. Yeah. And opinions. And it is, you know, not just amongst us, you know, the fans and the yeah. media and everything, but referees as well. Referees and officials see things differently. You know, yeah. and then it just becomes a kind of, you know, my todger's bigger than your todger. I've got authority on you. And it, it goes a bit like that. I swear that's probably what happens for three, four, five minutes. You know, we think this, we think this. Well, I think that. I think that. And... There you go. It's all just opinion. A lot of it seems to come down to who the most experienced referee is as well. There's suggestions that sometimes the more the less experienced ones don't want to overrule the. the yeah, that's what I, that's ones. what I mean. That's what I mean. The, yeah. the hierarchy, who's been around longer, you know, who's got the, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's a workplace, isn't it? And in a workplace, you know, some people shout louder than others, or seem to carry more weight, or throw their weight around than others, and I think that's probably what happens. Yeah. Well. Let's move the subject on to finish off the Villa stuff because we've got plenty, plenty of other stuff we need to get through. Um, we had two bookings in the game, Grosh and Caicedo. I only mention that as a comparison because Aston Villa didn't have two bookings. Aston Villa had seven bookings. Uh, in fact, three, four, five, yeah, six, seven. I also think it's worth clarifying what Grosh's booking was for as well. I yeah. don't know if I've ever known him get booked for dissent. He very rarely gets a yellow yeah. card. He got, he's so well, frustrated at their time-wasting. He yeah. got booked for descent. Yeah. That's got, how bad it was. And he got booked for descent walking over, I should say, the three bookings, actually, because Deserby got a yellow as well. Um, he got booked walking over with the referee towards Deserby as the card that he knew was about to go to Deserby was coming his way. Whether he said something about, <laughs> about that, I don't know. But he, he clearly said something and got booked. So w- one of our two is only because of all of the shit that Villa were doing. I thought... Aston Villa were a disgrace in this game once they got ahead. Um, you know, they played the game in whatever way beforehand. Martinez is a time waster in general. But the time wasting, the, the fashion, the level and the snidiness of all of the time wasting that, that occurred was an absolute disgrace. Yes, you, you game manage stuff and we've done it to an extent and other teams have done it. And England's women's team did it in the final of the Euros to an extent. That's savvy and you can do that. That's fine. It's part of the game. That's what the Villa fans kept arguing online on BBC comments and stuff like that. They were saying, oh, it's part of the game. We all do it. Yeah, we all do it. Not that you were arguing with them, Russ. No, no, not at all. That wasn't on there, no. Um, And and they're all entirely wrong. It's arrogant and (laughs) completely inaccurate to them to suggest this is what everyone does. Now, what they do is on a different scale. They had, as I mentioned, seven bookings. And Martinez, Cash, Mings, McGinn, Kamara... Young, who came on as a sub, and Bailey. I mentioned Young uh, and Bailey came on as a sub as well. Young came on for Ramsey. Ramsey should have had a booking as well, by the way. They, uh, the referee stopped play. I think probably shouldn't have done, and he did. And Ramsey was one-on-one with someone in the centre circle, caught the ball after the ball had been blown, and threw it down quite aggressively and quite a distance away from where he was standing. That's a booking. So they should have had eight bookings. And that's the one... Well, in fact, they should have had nine because Martinez should have been booked sooner than he was. Martinez should have been about six times, I think, probably. Um, Young, I think, was very lucky. He had absolutely no intention of getting the ball on Lamptey. 
He yeah. just kicked him from behind. Sure. I think that yeah. should be a red card, personally. If a player goes in and puts a player in danger, potentially, you know, yeah. there was no intention of getting anywhere near the ball. There was no intention. He could actually have really injured Lamptey and he had, and he, and he didn't care. He just kicked out of them. I'd have to see that again, to be honest. I know it was a blatant foul, definitely worthy of a booking minimum. I'd have to see it again to, to have a further view on that. I don't I don't know the rules, probably it's not a red card, but you feel that when someone just, just tra- basically just trips someone quite mm. aggressively without even trying to get the ball. Yeah, it was a cynical foul. The yellow card. I've mentioned Ming's. Ming's one was a clumsy foul, but the rest of it was was cynical fouling, and it was blatant, yeah. and it was rotated on purpose. It's not yeah, a it time wasting, wasn't it as well? Yeah, they as I said, they had the seven that should have been eight bookings. Those all of those bookings are different players. It's not a coincidence. This yeah. was systematic teamwork of time wasting, cynical fouling. The, the fouling was there to break up the play, to break up the rhythm of the Albion's game. They had, a, I'm not even sure how much, to what degree they needed to do that, actually, but they were trying to make sure they kept our rhythm broken. It's a seasoned tactic that people have done before, that they've done it to South American degrees, and that's saying something. Martin, yeah. We have that as a bit of a tribute to us, though, you know, the fact that they were actually prepared to come to Brighton and kind of go to that level. With, with a mean, manager who's won 14 trophies in eight years or whatever it is, yeah. Um, I would say so in a in a way. And you I'm, saw the way they, you know, the way they celebrated on the sideline at the end and in the way end as well, their yeah. fans. I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I take that as a bit of a tribute. I know that's no excusing kind of some of the levels they went to at the end, but they're a team that struggled yeah. this season. And, you know, until the last few weeks have been in danger of people talking about them as relegation candidates. Yeah. Heck. Yeah. You know? Peter? I was going to say, I think I've never seen a player time waste worse than Martinez. So an, a minute and a half he spent rolling around the floor after yeah. making the save, claiming to be injured when he was clearly nothing wrong with him in the first place. Then every goal kick, every kick out of his hand, whoever, he stood there, waited and waited. The referee would go, come on, come on, come on, and wouldn't book him, wouldn't really warn him. And it took him blatantly running up to Duncan, trying to confront Duncan like the 94th minute or whatever, for him to finally actually get his card out. And then he didn't even add on the time from that instance yeah. as well. He blew up and, and also, with the free kick that should have been taken by McGinn, McGinn walked away from the ball. No one else was anywhere near it. A minute later, McGinn's up the pitch, seemingly desperate to get the ball when we've got to throw him, uh, which seems a bit of curiosity. Oh, yeah. Should be getting back in position. Neither of those, as you said, the Martinez thing and that were added on. So Villa fans, again, comments and various bits on social media were going, oh, we added, they added the time on. But the point is, A, you've broken the rhythm up cynically and, and illegally with, with uh, systematic fouling. And B, yes, they've added the time on, but then they didn't add the time yeah. on in the time added on, yeah. which was a substantial, you know, it was eight minutes that was well, added probably on. probably wouldn't have scored in honesty, but... You know, at least at least give us yeah. the time. I, I think games like that. Give us the penalty Sunday. we deserve. We might have, we might have got the two yeah. more. Yeah, games like Sunday right show time. that there should be that what they're talking about is having half hour halves and having the clock stopped, and that yeah. would that would actually increase the amount of time in the pitch because there is no way that there was half hour hour played in that half. No, it well, the, no apparently way. the average, according to studies, the average amount of time that the ball is in play in all of the top European leagues, Premier League included, is somewhere around the 54, 55 minute mark yeah. uh, with a bit of variation here and there on individual games. Like this game, it's got to have been 45 maximum. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was less than a half a match. Yeah. And that's why I, I said earlier on, uh, Spencer, that I, I felt ripped off. I mean, win, yeah. lose or draw, I don't mind if we deserve to lose or even if we don't deserve to lose, we're unlucky. 
at least if we've seen a good game of football, uh, people trying to play earnestly up to a point, then fair enough. But when you've seen literally less than half of a game in terms of ball in play, I'm not getting value for money, regardless Jeez, of... You, should, you should be a sports writer and have to cover the occasional rugby union game. <laughs> Flip in act. Scrum reset, scrum reset. They can stop the clock, don't they? A lot of those, at least. They do, but ball in play, you know, nowhere near half of a match. Nowhere near. I mean, a good rugby union game is still a thing of beauty. Hmm. Uh, But unfortunately, they are getting fewer and further between. I think that's probably why the the sport hasn't ever attracted me enough to really get into it, to be honest. Probably probably that reason. And and I know, Andy, you're into US, uh, American football. But again, the stop-start thing with that, it's not for me. But anyway, that's... That is... is, Well, I mean, that's why they play 60 minutes, but the thing takes like three hours. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It can take five hours if it's a college game. But... um, and I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't like to see the rules changed and things fiddle around with more than necessary. If it ain't broken, don't fix it and all that. But I think it is time to bring in a, a, either a separate timekeeper who is a referee, although there's question marks around that because then you, we, the, we the fans still don't see what's going on with that, or you have a, a stop clock in the ground that's presumably. Man, managed by a ref uh, or an assistant ref or whatever, but is visible to everyone. So they can see, the players can see, the managers can see, the journalists can see, everyone can see when the clock's been stopped. So they can see if it's fair or not. So they've got something they can genuinely put in hard facts as, as, as a criticism if it's, it's not being stopped. It's a great stopped. thing, Russ. It's a great idea, but it'll never happen. No, no it won't. It'll just it never happen. Good, I, mean, I mean, this is a sport where basically, you know, officials don't explain their actions for stop to anyone. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, not there's no up. way they're going to green light a kind of big clock in the stadium. Yeah, they don't. They're not mic'd up. They don't speak after the game. They're not accountable for their actions or their mistakes. Everyone else is. The managers have to go and face the cameras, pumped up with negative adrenaline just after they've been robbed of a match. Um, but referees get scot free, don't they? In that regard. Yeah. Um, it's it, interesting though. It's so rare it happens. But both Dermot Gallagher and Mark Halsey. Both agreed yeah. with us that it was a penalty. Yeah, and, and that is, that's... Gallagher is so rarely a criticised referee, but he said he he could. I think he said he could understand why um, yeah. why Kavanaugh didn't see it, but couldn't understand why Gillett didn't give it on on VAR. Just to to finish off on the referee from my side, uh, while I, I don't blame for the penalty, to me Chris Kavanaugh is the worst referee in the Premier League. He is. Yeah, absolutely dreadful. I don't understand how he's still refereeing the Premier League. Well, he is now Mason's out of the equation. I mean, he, he's he is, useless. He is useless. Every single time I've seen him, he's been terrible. And I yeah. don't get how he's still refereeing. And it's, I suppose it's just a reflection on there's not much else coming through. But, I mean, that Millwall game he played in the Cup when he basically got every major decision right wrong in the whole game, mm-hmm. barring a Millwall sending off, is an example. But every time we have him, there seems to be something he does wrong. He's does, makes a major decision wrong, or he just gets everything wrong, and he just generally like gives poor decisions all game, but they're not so big, they don't get mentioned. And yeah, I mean, the fact that he's still refereeing Premier League shows how poor a quality of referees. Not that Jared Gillett's that much better anyway, he's pretty useless as well. Yeah, and no, people keep rating him in the refereeing circles, going, oh, he's a really promising ref coming in, and that's why we brought him in. We wouldn't have brought him in for abroad if he didn't have these credentials. He's Australian, for anyone that doesn't know. Um, but <laughs> well, I disagree, because I've seen him make a number of mistakes. He, he made hey, a number of... Like, there was nothing big at Arsenal, but it was all quite yeah. you know, minor errors. But yeah. things yeah. like booking Casado early on for a very, very minor foul, and then letting two or three of their players immediately afterwards get away with 
worth well, that's that. On the, that's on the checklist, isn't it? It's compulsory to put Casado. I think just just for an innocuous foul. I tell you what, chaps. Yeah. Just 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 one thing, right? I'm, I'm I'm not bragging here. Well, I am bragging because you know I am. Go for expense. But the week before last, I was out in Spain for quite a few days. Had a lovely time, nice and warm, Seville. Lovely place. If you've never been, go. Just I Lovely, but I got yeah. into the habit of, uh, I almost, you know, whenever I go abroad, I try and become James Richardson in about 1993 and sit in a cafe <laughs> reading, you know, uh, foreign sporting newspapers that I can't understand because I can't speak or read the language. But I got into this little habit of getting up in the mornings, going out and buying, um, uh, and I apologise if my pronunciation is wrong, their sports paper, Marca or Massa, I think it is, which basically Absolutely. translates as the score. And what I realized in that is, um, you know, they, they not only in their match reports give marks to the players, but they also give a mark to the referee, which oh. I don't think I've never noticed that happen. I don't know if any newspapers here do that. I've never seen it being done, but referees and the officials get scored. And I just thought that's a marvelous thing. We need to start doing that and basically just, you know, tell them, show these guys who think they're bees knees we need to show them basically you know what we think of some of their performances yeah and the great thing is is that if they're really bad they just don't give them a score <laughs> which is brilliant you know it's not three stars not two stars not one they're not marked so we need to we need to do that that's my campaign for next season well i think that's a great idea yeah i'm fully in favor of that what would chris kavanagh get <laughs> scoreless he'd, he'd just get thin air where there was meant to be a mark there won't be a mark and there's no avoiding that. It's out there. It's brilliant. I love you it. Just get, get one of those face palm smiley uh, emojis, can't you? That will probably do. Just have that next to his name each week. Um, a final word, because we've better gone to the other subjects in part two and three. But um, final thing is, it's been suggested before, and I think it's a great idea. It wouldn't have solved a lot of the problems uh, that Villa imposed on us in the latter part of that game. But um, the notion of giving a corner to the offended team when time-wasting by goalkeepers occurs, would that be a way of solving part of this problem? Because Martinez was the key protagonist in all this. His time-wasting, one of the occasions, we plonked the ball down and he moved it about half an inch and then and he did his shoelaces up and then he had a cup of tea and then he, then he, and then he phoned his mum and then he, then, he, then he gave it a kick, quick kick. Um, you know, all that time-wasting, time he should have got booked on that occasion. Um, maybe you don't book him. Maybe you just award a corner and then you've got an interesting scenario where you've got a genuine um, advantage given to the team that's being offended against. Um, you've also got an interesting scenario where people who are probably up the pitch, maybe less so in the Prem nowadays, but a lot of people might be up the pitch suddenly herring back for what could be a quickly taken corner. And if the goalkeeper is inclined to realise this problem and kick the ball away, then you've got the corner and the booking. Maybe that will be a way of um, of solving that element of the time wasting. But they have like the rule in place anyway. I don't understand. It's funny well, six seconds. Saying, we I, should I, go back yeah, to doing the really, counting, shouldn't we? The fans. There's an awful lot of refereeing things. Yeah, that I, that, that, I, get I don't do the six seconds thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. you should do because it's embarrassed the referee into doing it. Then, sorry, you Peter. Walk, yeah. You give them one warning, and then you and then you give them, then you book them. And if a team's doing it, so there's like all they're doing, all throw into that sort of thing. You take the captain aside and say, if, you, if one of your players time wastes again, you, you, they'll get a booking, and I'll keep booking your players until it's a really simple thing, and yet no, no referees ever do it. You very rarely get it done properly, and the irony yeah. is he yeah. put Matty Cash for far less than Martinez did. Yeah. Ironically, yeah. 
When did they do away with the six seconds thing? I mean, I remember being at a game a couple of years ago and uh, I wasn't in a working capacity. I was, and it was a bright time. Ago, I, I, I I'd, I'd had a couple of ciders as well, Andy, <laughs> over this. So the cider gobbles were on. And I was doing six seconds, ref, six seconds. And there were some kind of kids, I say kids, they were probably in their 20s to my right. And they were like, what are you on about? And I was looking at them, arms outstretched. Six seconds, you know, six seconds. And I may as well have been talking in Flemish. They had no idea. And I'm just thinking, no, this is me here. This is me on the planet. And clearly at some point. This is just, is it still is it still six seconds? It's still or a rule, it, I believe. Yeah, it's just it's not really interpreted. No one bothers with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. clearly. I mean, there are a couple of occasions at the weekend. Villa obstructed the ball quite clearly. A player went down on top of it, basically, and lay on it almost. But you never see free kick uh, indirect free kicks given for obstruction these days. Well, I think I, throws. I, no, I've only ever once seen the six second thing imposed, and that was on Neville Southall for Everton at Nottingham Forest mm. years ago years ago and he went mad as you can imagine yeah, yeah and it was nil nil last minute and Forrest scored from the free kick after which he went even more mad and in all the time since what when did that rule come in no 90 91 something like that 32 years and it's once yeah. i've yeah. seen it imposed. also one other thing with when martinez did that absolutely farcical he it was sort of like a, a long ball from range he caught it and hold on to it for a reasonably tidy save and then he pretended to be ill injured as you said peter and threw the ball out of play over the touchline um and then wasted a minute and a half and then we got the ball back obviously the, the custom would then be to throw the ball back to him if he hadn't have gone down and thrown the ball out he would have kicked the ball upfield so you can understand uh, that yeah. why it was kicked over the goal line for him to then take a goal kick but having clearly cheated, it was obviously cheating. Yeah. I think bollocks to it. Well, I saw it. We're, we're not going to give the ball back. We are going to have gone halfway and, get, and given them a throw on. And that yeah, or at least, go, yeah, at least back, put it, but... give yourself a minor advantage by yeah. making them take a throw in. Don't let it go over the goal line because then he's wasted all that time and he's got back to square one again. I, uh, can, believe, I can believe we gave the ball back. It's just, there was not a good. Well, you do hear that, don't you, about Brighton, you know, from, well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, there is, a, people do say Brighton are too nice, you know, from the moment yeah. you're waiting. Never give the ball back. From, from the, yeah, from the moment you're waiting, gets off a coach, basically, you know, welcome to Brighton, welcome this, and here's this. And this yeah, and I mean, if you've got, if you've got someone with a genuine injury, and you can see it's a serious injury, yeah. and then you put it out, then that's, that's outrageous to keep the ball, but something like this, where they're clearly cheating, yeah. Sorry, they're playing. They're playing games with us. We'll play games Absolutely. with them, and we'll score a bloody equaliser for. Our, for the referee as well in your ear, going, give it back, give it back, give it back. Yeah. I think I, th- I think Deserby might change his sort of thing because he seems much more of a yeah. yeah, much more of a spiky character, should we say? Hence his booking on. Uh, you know, I mean, whatever you might think about Potter, I think he probably just sat, stood there quite quietly, not really commenting on it, and maybe like made a minor comment about maybe it should have been a penalty at the end, whereas Deserby was clearly. Uh, Livid. He's going to get a few bookings for the rest of this yeah. season, isn't he? And maybe the old red card as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, gentlemen, let's let's break there for the end of part one. Part two, we're going to talk to Spencer about his lovely new book, uh, Eric mm. and Dave. Um, so that's coming up in part two. And we also going to have another rant later on about the World Cup. Stay Yay, tuned, folks. More rants. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
So there we go, part one, uh, talking about the Villa game and all the ranting involved. It is the end of the Premier League season for now because we have this ridiculous break for the World Cup. We'll be ranting about the World Cup in part three. Um, But what we can say about that is um, Brighton have finished uh, for the time being in seventh place. Liverpool overtook us on the on the Saturday, we weren't able to go back above them because we lost to Villa. But the joy and the beauty is Palace had already lost, so we knew we were going to be above them. And we are also above poor old Graham Potter's team. Uh, he's gone right back to where we started when he took over a few weeks ago, hasn't he? Um, back below us where, where it was when he left. Oh, well, never mind. Happy days. <laughs> Happy days. So we, we have with us, Peter, don't we? Andy Bass, regular contributor, um, which is great to have you with us. Um, it's a pleasure, sir. And also Mr. Spencer Vignus, who has written a new book. He's written a few books about the Albion. If you don't know what the other ones are, where have you been? Look them up. <laughs> but his latest one, also on the subject of the Albion, is called Eric and Dave, A Lifetime of Football and Friendship. Um, and for our contributors to show you that on the screen... And it's a rather charming and delightful story. You told us about its upcoming uh, release. It is now out, isn't it, Spencer? It is now out, yes, in all its glory. And the great news is, is remarkably quickly, it's gone to a second, it's gone to a reprint already. Oh, blind. Which is, is, I I know, it's a little bit like, what, really? Okay, so, yeah, so I, it's, yeah, it must be selling. People must be buying it because, yeah, the reprint has been ordered this, this, this week. So, I've read it. I can thoroughly recommend it. It's absolutely brilliant. It was very kind enough to give me an advanced copy. So I had a look through, read the whole thing, and I absolutely love it. But I don't think I could do it justice. I think it's probably best if you describe the book, um, first of all. I think uh, it, it probably isn't because I, I just end up rambling. I really will be the audio, reading the audio book, seven hours, 28 minutes. <laughs> Well, it's about two two Albion goalkeepers, isn't it, essentially? One of whom uh, was the number one, and the, the other one was his long-term friend, who stayed his long-term friend, despite having been a number long-suffering two. number two. Yeah, uh, I mean, long. I'll tell you about... The story begins for me when... Um, go back to March 2020, that horrible month when the wars of COVID are kind of coming in, and uh, the season gets put on... Uh, well, I'm paused, didn't it? But Brighton took the decision. You know, as I said, uh, you know, I write for the club mag and do a lot of the nostalgia things and the heritage things of seasons gone by. And Brighton made the decision that when football resumed, they were going to um, uh, continue with printed programmes rather than go kind of electronic. So one of my interviewees or the first interviewee I had lined up was a guy called Eric Gill. And I'd never spoken to Eric before. And Eric back then was all of uh, uh, 89 at the time I got a number for him gave him a buzz we had this wonderful conversation Eric Gill for the uninitiated was the goalkeeper in our first ever promotion team in 1958 when we went up from what was basically Division 3 South and he'd been our keeper already then for about seven years and he'd set this well equaled this football league record of playing consecutive games 247 consecutive games between the posts for the album and he didn't beat it because uh, in the week before he was due to kind of get the record, he got flu. But that's off on a bit of a tangent anyway. And I remembered when um, I, I did this interview with Eric and it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I missed it while we were having the chat and I taped it. When I was going back and listening back to the tape, halfway through the bit where he'd started talking about uh, Dave Hollins, his number two, his rival. He'd said, oh, yeah, we're still mates. And I'd missed it. 
I talked over the top of it or whatever, and he just and I'd gone over it, and I was I was playing the tape, the little dictaphone back. Oh yeah, we're still mates. Yeah, it was, it's like have I heard that right? And I phoned Eric back and I said, you know, Dave, you and him still mates. He said, yeah, we're going bowling the day after tomorrow. And you just think that's incredible. I mean, you know, Eric made his league debut in 1951. Um, Dave came along, I think he, yeah, he came to the album in 1955. And yet, you know, here we are 70 years later and they're still mates. And not kind of mates who, you know, maybe meet up once a year or at an official function or whatever, you know, organized by other people. They were proper friends or are proper friends to this day who just still go out and down, you know, DIYing, you know, to get stuff or go out for a pint or go bowling together. And so um, I asked the two of them, I said, look, you know, do you fancy doing a book? Uh, and they were like, you know, yeah. And so we went from there. And it, it just wrote itself because they had so many stories, not just at the time of Brighton, but in their careers. Um, it just wrote itself. I mean, the incredible one, really, Eric's incredible. The, but the, I mean, Dave, I know I'm rambling a little bit here. Put it this way, right? You're the reserve team goalkeeper behind a guy who is playing 247 straight games. When you finally get into the team in your fourth game for the Albion, you concede nine goals away at Middlesbrough and Brian Clough scores five of them. And at that point, you think, right, I've waited this long only to have this done to me. Wouldn't it just be easier if I just walk away from this and just become a bank manager or an artilleryman or something safer or whatever? And yet the remarkable thing about Dave is he knuckled down. He eventually replaced Eric. He got a big money transfer. I say big money, £11,000 in 1961 was big money to Newcastle. Saved a penalty from Danny Blanchflower on his debut for Newcastle. Went on to become Wales's number one goalkeeper. Made his debut away in Brazil against Pele and roomed with the great John Charles. I mean, if that's not a tale of redemption, then, you know, what is? So anyway, the, 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 the book is basically, it's not just, it's not just, oh, they played in this game and they played in that game and then they did this. It's just about their friendship and their lives and everything that that encompasses, the ups and downs of it. They're great. I'm honoured to call them mates now. It's, it's just marvellous. Privilege to have told their story and, and they're loving it as well. It's almost like, you know, they've gone from, really think anybody will be interested in this to you know oh yeah where's our next engagement where's the next interview where's the next this what's the next rotary club that want us to talk at it's yeah they're they're loving it and uh i i should say happy birthday to um eric because uh his his birthday is coming up he'll be 92 and just you know an inspiration really absolute inspiration so yeah great couple that's what the book's about We've lost you. Yeah, I've, I, I forgot I was on mute. Sorry about that. Yeah. Hey. I'm back, yes. Um, yeah, it, it's a great story. I was going to say um, Dave Hollins um, is part of the Hollins family. Uh, of course, it, you've, you've got um, Chris Hollins, who was a BBC sports writer and um, won Strictly Come Dancing, I believe, amongst other things. 
Uh, he was, I think, um, a sportsman, but not not to any sort of significant degree. Uh, he's the, I think, it's right in saying, is that the grandson or is it the nephew, grand nephew or something? I can't remember. He's part of the family, isn't he? Yeah, um, he's the, he's he's Dave's nephew, and he's the son of John Hollins, you know, who used to play for yeah. Chelsea and Arsenal. Because they, yeah, that's a great quiz question. Of course, you know, they grew up together in in Guildford shared the same room at the council house and John went on to play for England and Dave went on to play for Wales. And the crazy thing is, is um, when uh, Dave first got selected, when he was a Brighton player to play for Wales under 23s and Billy Lane, Brighton's then manager, called him into his office and Dave thought he was actually being sold. He thought, look an heck, you know, I can't be being sold already. And Billy Lane brought him in, sat him down and said, congratulations, son. You've been uh, selected to play for Wales under-23s versus Scotland next week. And Dave was like, well, how come? And until then, he had no idea he'd even been born in Wales while his dad had been working there. So, yeah. So the following week, he ended up in Wrexham at the racecourse ground facing Dennis Law in an under-23 game. So, but yeah, yeah. So he became their international keeper in time, but he had no idea. He thought he was Guildford born and bred. So that came as a bit of a surprise. <laughs> There's wonderful anecdotes around the sort of the early days as well about wartime and various kind of things in their upbringing. Um, also about what they're doing now, you know, but they're still attending the bowls club together, aren't they? I think playing. Yeah, they, still, they play down at Denton Island down in New Haven. Yeah. Which is, if you've never been there, is that's a world within a world, really. An island within a kind of like, you know, I, ne- I never knew there was a bizarre island in the middle of New Haven, but there is, Denton Island. And on it, there is a bowls club. Yeah. And it's great. Marvellous. Good bar there as well. Is it? Yeah, fine oh, bar. Might have to pop down. I only discovered Denton Island's existence um, a few weeks ago, funnily enough, but um, yeah, it's strange. Um, there's also a good forward, actually, from Dave Hollins. Well, both of them are quoted in the forward, um, but he said, you don't make many friends in football, at least not close ones, but I've come to realise over the years that Eric and I are different. We've been through so much, both together and as individuals, and we're still here. After all this time, getting on for 70 years from when we first met, we're still here. And I guess that, that kind of sums up the essence of the book, doesn't it, really? Like yeah. said, it's a great yeah. story of friendship and longevity yeah. <laughs> as friends and as, as players and as yeah. people. It's been a blast to write. And it, and as I said, it kind of wrote itself. You always hope as a writer that, you know, if you do your research properly, uh, then the chapters and everything and whatever should fall into place. And this one did kind of fall, yeah, it did fall into place. And that's the end of them. So, yeah, been a blast, been a blast. Uh, widely, widely available in bookshops, and it's on the Pitch Publishing uh, label, isn't it? We do a lot of excellent sports-related publishing, don't they? It is, it is. There is an Albion connection there as well, slightly, uh, because, of course, I mean, Pitch was was formed by Brighton's press officer, Paul Camden. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there is a link there. Um, but, yeah, it's it's they're, they're the, the best, I think, the best sports independent publishers that there is. And some of their books are just absolutely, you know, brilliant. Go on there, go on their website and just have a look at the range of publications they come out with. And, you know, it's all sorts of stuff. There's something for everyone, really. Yeah, it's true. I literally just bought the book. Well, hey, what on on Friday. (laughs) So I'm very much looking forward to uh, reading it. Oh, you should have said something. I should have sorted something out. But thank you. So well, support the artist. Support oh, the artist. bless you, Andy. Bless you. He's a gentleman. And and it's our first live 
book purchase that's ever happened <laughs> on the podcast. I know, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Probably won't be the last now. It's you ought to set a precedent there, Andy. We all ought to go, yeah, do, do another show or something where we all watch <laughs> something online and have to talk about it. It's, it's, a, it's a busy it's time. online book club sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a busy it, time. It does, it does sound like a, a, a wonderful story, and it's like not even like the Albion connection, obviously, that's the original interest. It's just the human connection. And given the way the world is at the moment and uh, what everybody's been through over like, the, the, the COVID period, um, I think people need heartwarming stories like this. And like, yeah. I just get, just get reminded about, you know, who your friends are and just those people that, that you know, that do make your life. Much, and much it's, better. It's, it's a reminder, Andy, that, you know, I think anyone who thinks, oh, God, you know, we live in a bit, bit of a shitstorm now, which we do, you know, it's a reminder that it's been that way for a long, long time. I yeah. mean, I mean, in a parallel universe, um, Eric and Dave wouldn't have seen World War Two out. I mean, both yeah. of them had very near misses. Eric, for one, without spoiling too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a uh, a parachute mine, basically, kind of fall out of the night sky in Camden one night and just landed on his doorstep. And at that point, his block of flats should have been absolutely levelled and there would have been no book. And the, the parachute mine didn't go off. And Dave as well, even in, uh, he was playing the back garden in Guildford during World War uh, Two, And a stray German bomber came down their back gardens, getting rid of its, you know, its, its bullets from its machine guns before flying back over the channel. And it was only down to an aunt who just called him and his... Uh, his cousin in at the last minute, just as it was strafing the back gardens. So, you know, you do tend, you know, it's a reminder that basically we've been living in a bit of a shit storm kind of like for, mm. yeah, longer than a lot of us care to remember really. Yeah. So, yeah. But just because of, you know, just because the world's burning up and stuff like that doesn't mean to say we can't have good friendships and rely on each other. And that's what Eric and Dave have done. So yes. yeah. Yeah. It's, it is heartwarming. And they're also they're also um, amongst many others who've played for the Albion and settled in the area, haven't they? You've got your Jerry Ryan's, you've got your Andy Rollins. More recently, you've got your um, your Glenn Murray's, uh, and I think Steve Sibwell still lives locally. Actually, I'm not sure, but there's there's a whole bunch of people kind of. Get- yeah, I mean, I mean, Eric came south to play for Brighton and never left. You know, mm. he saw out most of his career. You know, and basically that's it. He he bought a a, a hotel, you know, in the area, and he stayed. Dave was slightly different because he he got transferred to Newcastle and was at Newcastle throughout the 60s and then has gradually worked his way south since. He went from Newcastle to Mansfield Town and Mansfield Town to Aldershot where his career finished. Uh, Then lived in Guildford and then pre-COVID just decided stuff this, I'm going to move back to Sussex with his wife. So they both moved back to Sussex as well. So um, yeah, so he spent his life kind of like going away and then kind of like slowly working his way back. And as they both said, I mean, you know, particularly during COVID, you know, they live on the coast, Peacehaven and, you know, Irvingdean. And they said, you know, finally, when you were allowed to go out the house and go for walks and not really be too close to each other or whatever, it's like they both said, why would you want to live anywhere else on planet Earth? That's true. Yeah. Good. Sussex by the sea, sunny and lovely. Which yeah. is why I live in Cardiff, raining and <laughs> Well, I didn't want to say. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true. You know, I loved it. You know, I'm I'm one of those guilty people who basically kind of, I didn't moan about Sussex when I lived down there, far from it. But you know, when you're growing up and you're a teenager and you think, I want to see the world, I want to go off and see the world, and I want to leave this behind and blah, blah, blah. 
And it's only really like in the years later, you think, why was I so desperate to leave here? Every time I go back or I'm drinking in a pub or I've got to get a train from Brighton back to Victoria and then go to Paddington and then back home. You think, why was I so keen to leave here? But maybe you've got to go away to properly appreciate it. You know? I, think, I think maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah, possibly so. I mean, I've got hankering to move back at uh, some point in the future as well yeah i couldn't uh, afford to now even if i wanted to this book's going to have to sell a shed load of copies if i'm ever going to afford to set foot in sussex again let alone move there indeed indeed well it's available in all good bookshops just once again spencer vignus of course eric and dave a lifetime of football and friendship so uh bye and you've done it already uh, go, get on with it the rest of you why not why not oh, <laughs> oh, my lead. On that lovely note, a nice cheery way um, it would be to end a podcast, but we're not ending it there because we're going to go back into ramp mode in part three <laughs> because it's the it's the first um, first real kind of coverage we've done properly of the uh, of the World Cup. So that's coming up in part three. And so to part three, where we start to turn our attentions away from the Albion and their um, enforced break for a few weeks, as all clubs have, while the World Cup takes place, or all clubs in the top two divisions in England anyway. Um, we have still got the EFL, and Peter and I, I think we're going to tick off a few clubs as we ground hop. We were down at um, Sutton at the weekend. We Unfortunately for the team, our temporary uh, new home team for, for the day, they lost 2-0 to Bradford. Um, interestingly, Bradford City fans we were chatting to were talking about how the ref did add on loads of time-wasting time at the end of the match. So maybe it is a new edict, um, possibly. Kavanagh did, didn't he, in, uh, in our game with Villa? Just forgot to add on the bits in the added on time, but there we go. But we're going to tick off a few more grounds, aren't we? We've done Sutton, which is both of our 86th grounds out of 92, and we're planning to do Morecambe, Accrington and Harrogate before the year's out. Um, my, Sutton was my 150th ground overall, though, and I think you're up to about 155, is it? Like that, yeah. I'm mad. Ridiculous. Harrogate's good. You'll enjoy Harrogate. I mean, it's almost, it reminded me a little bit of, of the Goldstone ground in that, you know, you always tend to think of, of grounds, you know, particularly those old fashioned grounds has been surrounded by terraced houses and factories and stuff. And of course, the Goldstone ground wasn't. It was in Hove, actually. And yeah. uh, Harrogate is a little bit like that. It's surrounded by kind of very nice Harrogate, actually kind of, you know, tree lined avenues and whatever. Nice little ground. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And there's some good bars in Harrogate as well. So make them, yeah, go there. Make that your next one. We are we are making a weekend of that, and there is of course Betty's tea shop as well, which the wife's coming to this trip as well, so it's going to be a matter of uh, uh, pacifying her as well. So we are going to stay over the weekend and and make a make a proper time of it. It is. You won't deep. regret that. You won't. Yeah, regret that. but it's it's very posh, isn't it? By Yorkshire standards, that's the way it's perceived all over. Well, uh, Harrogate. When I when I was the um, uh, in in another life, when I was the Observer's northeast correspondent, and I did Middlesbrough and uh, and Sunderland and Newcastle and what have you. Basically, all of the Leeds and Middlesbrough players lived in Harrogate. Uh, it was you know that was like the common ground, basically, kind of like that. And Gareth Southgate still lives there from his Middlesbrough time as well. He never left. Yeah, okay. yeah, there we go. And I, I know Michael Richards lives there as well. Apparently, there's a lot of yeah. taking going on with. Uh, Yorkshireman Rory Smith, the journalist who's uh, making fun of him for living there. So oh, he probably won't be there, or hopefully won't be there when we go there, though. Otherwise, <laughs> think they've got got a very early trip back. <laughs> I think you know you always tend to think of Harrogate as Betty's and the tea shops and whatever. I can actually vouch for the fact there's some very good bars there. Proper, you know, proper life, you know, beyond. So when you've had cake 
when you've had your fill of cake, go for a walk around the park or go down to the ground, then hit the bars afterwards. Let them eat yes. cake Let and them eat loads cake. of beer. Oh, yeah. oh, if you insist, Spencer, then we'll ha- I suppose we'll simply have to then. I do, and I give you full permission. <laughs> Brilliant. Lovely. Right, well, let, let's get ranting. So we've got the World Cup, of course, now happening. Um, it's, um, I'm looking at the date of the 16th of November today, Wednesday the 16th, and this Sunday the World Cup kicks off for the first time in, well, Western winter time. Um, totally preposterous. There, there's a number of different things we'll get into on this, I'm, I'm sure. But, of course, this all started in 2014, I think it was, when the bid was announced, mm. uh, or the winning bid was announced. Uh, and Sepp Blatter, who apparently wasn't actually in favour of Qatar, supposedly he wanted, I think it was Australia, was it? They were going USA. Up um, USA. That was it, yeah. Um, however... Uh, not that we'd like to use the C word, but um, corruption seemed to be centred around this. The moment we heard this this announcement, I was disgusted. I'm not completely surprised. The fact they were in the running made you wonder what was going to happen next. And when it happened, and then a lot of corruption scandal stuff started to unfold, uh, not just to do with that, but other things besides, uh, the whole dirty, murky world of FIFA came into the public eye bit by bit, didn't it? And well, if you remember, it was, you know, it was announced at the same time that the Russia World Cup Russia. was announced. Yeah. And I remember doing a piece to radio in the days after that and saying, well, I think Russia probably will go ahead, but there is no way in a million years that that World Cup in Qatar will happen. Something, some kind of sense of, of you know, common sense will prevail. There's no way we're going to the desert for a World Cup. And yet here we are yeah. with two or three days to go. And yeah, we're here. And I tell you what, you say about ranting, right? Going back to Dave Hollins, and this isn't another plug for my book. <laughs> no matter how much Andy rants and Pete and you, Russ, and me, it's nothing on Dave Hollins because Dave, you've got to remember, Wales qualified for their last World Cup in 1958. Dave was their keeper when they tried to qualify in 1962. Dave was also their keeper when they tried and failed to qualify in 1966, and they've never managed it since. So Wales have waited all of this time to make it back to a second World Cup, and it's the one in bloody Qatar. Mm. And if you start Dave on it, he will just go for hours about why it is wrong and whatever. And he's got every right to, because you think, you know, 62, they were going to go. 66, they were going to go. To wait all of this time to have this World Cup, to have it in Qatar. No. It's a disgrace. It has to be said, though, that um, it's fair to point out that Obviously, you know, we might all say it's corrupt, but FIFA did clear itself of corruption in involving this case. So, you know, it, it, you know, I mean, if you can't trust FIFA to, you know, to judge itself, you know. Sounds legit to me, Pete. Sounds like I'm sold. <laughs> yes. A, a, just a tinge of sarcasm there, Pete. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know what you mean. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I mean, you know, I mean, this is way I know I'm in Cardiff and everything, but, you know, um, there's no buzz down here. People no. are looking forward to seeing how Wales do, but there's no flags out. Yeah. There's no bunty. I know it's the winter. And you don't expect to see those little car flags and whatever and stuff like that in the middle of November. Mm. But, you know, no one's saying, oh, where are you going to watch it on Monday? Where are you going to yeah. watch it? You know, mm. there's there's very little kind of pizzazz about it. I don't know about you guys in your respective parts of, of England and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, oh. not seen an, I've not seen North Pole art. I'm probably more excited about seeing like Ecuador and teams like that who have got Albion players playing than I am particularly about seeing England. I think the England thing's also partly down to I think Southgate's run his course and 
has become a bit predictable and England don't see those great results. So they're not going in in great form and never do well outside Europe anyway, generally. So it's not yeah. going to be, I don't think England are really realistic contenders. I think the fact that, Spencer, you've just said Wales are qualified for the first time in a generation or more and there's not that much excitement apart no, from... No, I think, I think of all the World Cups... It's all, isn't it? All the World Cups they could have gone to, you know, yeah. on wonderful places, you know, and, and yeah. Italy, I mean, wherever, in America. And uh, no, it's this one. It's just... it's, it's Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if anyone's been living under a rock, just to, to clarify the, the various reasons why we think this is wrong. First of all, um, the, the reason, ironically, that Seth Blatter, talking about people crawling out from under rocks, uh, he, he recently said that he... Um, or he reiterated that he was uh, not happy it went to Qatar. But his reasoning was nothing to do with most of the worst reasons why it shouldn't go, or the best reasons why it shouldn't go, I should say. Uh, it was because of the, the size element, which is a valid argument. It's a yeah. desert city state. It is a one city unit. It doesn't have the capacity. It, it, it's it's ta- it taking in a, a million people or at least it and its neighbours are taking in a million people to, uh, to absorb, or that's what they're expecting in numbers, uh, to host this tournament. Uh, it's never been done on such a small scale before. The closest you come to that is Uruguay, which is not much bigger than, I think, population-wise, not a great deal bigger, or at least at the time. And it's also a long time since Uruguay hosted it as well. Yeah. And it was a much they, smaller... They hosted the first one, and I think there was, what, only eight, only eight teams? Yeah, eight teams, smaller tournament. Yeah. And smaller populations, particularly in terms of travel and tourism yeah. and you know air flights and all that, you, you just didn't have the numbers. Well, people, people went by. I think Italy went by boat. Yeah, brilliant. That's great. Uh, when they won, I'd, I'd stand to be corrected, but yeah. it so might you take a while to get there. Then okay. you've got you've got that as your first argument, anyway. There. Secondly, it doesn't have a particular culture. F- for football apparently people are interested in football in qatar fine but that's the same all over the world but it doesn't have any infrastructural history of playing the game to any significant degree you've got that that and those two things alone would i would say would invalidate the the, the favorite status for it to be awarded the the, the tournament in the first place then of course and then <laughs> and then we go on to the to the and main then... juicy stuff there are a whole range of reasons why it shouldn't be getting it for moral, uh, humanitarian reasons, etc. First of all, you've got their stance on uh, various things to do with human rights, um, the treatment of women, the, um, uh, the, the fact that homosexuality and well, transsexuality and all, all the other things related to that are all criminalised in the country um, with various punishments ranging from anything up to minor punishments up to up to death uh, could be attributed to um, to that. And then you've got the workers' rights issues. When they've rewarded this tournament, they've had to build – they only have one stadium, apparently, which was up to the right levels or there or thereabouts. They've had to build, what is it, eight, I think, altogether, seven or eight. Yeah, you, said it. You, you said workers' rights. There are no rights. Yeah, there are no rights, yeah. And there's, there's this sponsorship thing. I think it's called Kafala, I think it's called, where they have this sponsored worker system. So they get people in from abroad because they don't have large numbers of – working class people there who are labourers who can do the job. So they farm in these people, mainly from South Asia. So Bangladesh, I think Nepal as well, um, India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. And I think also from the Philippines as well, further over in Asia. Um, That's where the bulk, the vast majority of the workers, the labourers have come from. They've had uh, the system 
allows them no real rights, no workers' rights. So they have their passports confiscated when they're into the country, so they have no flexibility. They have no right to change jobs within the country, even to another company doing the same work for the same purpose. And they are in, well, a number of cases being sold a false promise. Then They don't have the conditions that they should have as workers, as general basic human rights. They are being paid in a lot of cases of reports, half of what they were told they were going to be paying, but they've had to pay to get onto this sponsorship scheme to get over to the country. They have to pay in advance to get there and then they get paid the money. So to only get half your money, but if you say, sod that, I'm not doing it, that's not what you promised, you've still paid all of that sponsorship fee to get over there. And you're effectively, you have to carry on doing the job because there are no other options. And in fact, you haven't got the choice to go home anyway, unless they um, let you go home because they've got your passports. That's the the bulk of the situation as far as working workers' rights going. They are saying that I think a recent um, declaration that they've lost 38 people during construction, 38 people. Amnesty International and the, the World Reports are suggesting it's 6,700 people. Slight anomaly between the two figures, I'm sure you'll I agree. Mean, given modern working practices, 38 is still ridiculously high. I mean, yeah, you don't exactly. never have people, no. that many people died anywhere near building stadiums. It's like... let, let's, let's get this right. I mean, Brazil, they, they, the number of people died in Brazil during construction phases due to probably some negligence, probably some incompetence, maybe some unfortunate accidents, whatever it might be. Those things can happen. But 38, I'm not sure how many died in Brazil. Well, but they, they happened again because of problems working, problems with the way that was done. Exactly. It shouldn't happen. You know, if one person dying in the building of a, of a, of a stadium is too many. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, FIFA, the World Cup, the whole concept of bringing the game to the world, fine, that's in essence is fine, but they continuously um, award the, the tournaments to countries who then don't really, as far as I'm concerned, make the best of what they've been given. In terms of Brazil, they had the opportunity. Tim Vickery, the, um, the, the South American-based journalist, has uh, waxed lyrical about how Brazil have failed to take advantage of the opportunities to build a proper long, long-standing infrastructure and the better apportioned stadium plans and better transport links. They they're could the have used that money. They? Sorry? They had the Olympics a couple of years after the World Cup yeah. as well, didn't they? Yeah. And they squandered. Yeah, they squandered a lot of the opportunities they had to have given themselves a proper long-term um, setup for the future beyond just football. Yes, it's a football nation, and of course it deserves to have it as, as much as anyone else, but they need to, to do better with it. White Elephant Stadiums in South Africa. It was brilliant that the tournament was brought to Africa, and that was one of the more logical ones, climate, climatically wise, and also in terms of um, the uh, j- just the facility to take it on. But they've ended up with White Elephant Stadiums, which is not ideal. However, that is one of the legacies of World Cups. We can deal with that. Yeah. Then you've got Russia, who... Um, obviously do have a football history. Um, they do have a, a, a rich heritage in football. They've had a long-standing professional league. They've done pretty well, uh, club and internationally-wise, in the past. However, there were question marks about them in terms of uh, a number of things, major issues with hooliganism, uh, major issues with um, uh, sort of homophobia and other scenarios along those lines. And obviously you had the issue, although I don't think it was the case, I think the annexation of Crimea was just after the award of the um, 
of the of the tournament. So you can't really yeah. throw that in there. But but there was the, the other issues that the there was still corruption though, wasn't there? There was still, there was still, there was still Putin who was a, a dictator in in all you know, in every sense at that exactly. point. Basically. And we've recently had Infantino say, let's hope that this can be a catalyst for uh, for peace in reference to, to Ukraine. Isn't he buddies with Putin? He's, he seems to be pretty pally with the bloke. Maybe he should just have a word himself, not not worry about what the rest of us are doing. Andy, <laughs> I shall pass it to you for now. I'll, I'll rant on later in a moment, but <laughs> over to you, sir. Where to begin? Um, I think <laughs> where I will begin is with this... Um, notion that FIBA has that is bringing expanding the, the, the game to different to different regions and bringing a positive legacy. Duplicitous. Isn't um, it? I agree with that. They they should. I think it was great that they had the the World Cup in South Africa. Ironically, South Africa had to buy the votes when really they should have been given them anyway. Yeah. Um, if you anybody watches the FIFA Uncovered um, series on Netflix, it's like South Africa had to end up paying bribes. Ended up paying bribes to ex-con, the uh, executive committee um, members to get their votes. When really, like in a post-apartheid world, having a celebration of football in a football-mad country that was a beacon for, you know, a beacon for change, you know, would have, would have been a no-brainer. In fact, you know, you know, FIFA should have been paying because South Africa doesn't have that much money. They so FIFA should have been using its money to pay for everything so that South Africa could have it, not the other way round. So it's absolute nonsense. Now, I have watched um, some stuff about the Qatar beard as well. Um, absolute for, for, I mean, even for like logistical reasons, a moment that you, you, know, you can't host it in June and July when we normally have the World Cup. Well, you can't host it then because it's too hot. Well, then you're not hosting it. Then we're not. And that was part of the bid. Yeah, yeah and that was part bid. of the bid. And so, absolute rubbish. They got it because they bought it. Yep. And um, and but I think it is important that, that they do find. I mean, we had um, Japan, South Korea, so we have had an Asian Cup, but to have like a more Middle Eastern Cup. Hmm. Um, but like in, in you know, but the, and FIFA should be looking at how can we make it work. In I mean, obviously Egypt's very problematic at the moment. But if that ever got to be a bit more stable, maybe Egypt would be great. I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there are all sorts of things that FIFA could be doing, and and, they, and they're having out these these sort of noble reasons. Well, it's great for this reason, and we're expanding the game. There's no where, where do you how to expand the game in Qatar, a country that has like no people in it. The only people that are there are the people who are basically enslaved by, by, by the very rich locals to like build all of this glitz and glamour for them for literally no money. And, um, and, and they, and they care nothing for their conditions. Their conditions are marginally less shit than they were when they actually got the bid. And then, you know, and they made a big point to say, well, we have actually changed our, our regime to be slightly less onerous on them, but it doesn't stop people dying of heat exhaustion, heart attacks and stuff just because I'd say natural causes, which means they're not associated with the world cup. I think you're right. Absolutely. absolutely, I'm, I'm, I I just cannot. And that's before we even get onto like the human rights and LGBTQ rights and stuff, which is also like if the, you know, if it's the world's game, if the world can't come to Qatar and watch, the game in safety. If the world isn't really invited, then 
we shouldn't be inviting you to host our host our tournament. Football's for everyone. Do you uh, think, Andy, in a, in a strange way, that this bid has almost backfired on Qatar in the way absolutely. that basically it has shone a light on everything yeah. fundamentally wrong with and, and it's doing so now. So as well. Here's the trick for Qatar. Hmm. Change. Say, say you're going to change. Mean it. Do it. And then maybe FIFA might have ironically got themselves a result here. I have... I, I mean, I've basically been boycotting this tournament since the... the I, don't, I mean, to be honest, I didn't even know what day it was starting. Apparently, it's on Sunday. I literally had to look it up just now to find out when the first match was. And... You know what? I am sad about that because the World Cup is brilliant. Yeah. You're a football fan. You've got like three or four weeks of sitting sitting on your sofa or going down a pub, watching, you know, watching the world's best players. There's always stories and dramas. There will, and in this tournament, this tournament will have sporting drama, and uh, there, and there will be good sports stories. Um, in this, but for me, it, it, who cares? It, it doesn't matter because of who is bankrolling it, what's behind it, what what's made this happen. We all know it's, it is an embarrassment to football, and I and I think there's been a slightly low. There has been like a low key um, thing, and I feel and Spencer's point about Wales. I mean, I've I've got a surprisingly large amount of Welsh friends, believe it or not, and. <laughs> And it's really sad that they can't. I don't. That, that they can't fully throw themselves into this tournament. No. And like, oh, come on, Wales, because Wales don't qualify that often for the World Cup. This should be amazing. If I, you know, ordinarily, if I was a Welsh football fan, I'd be selling my house to go. And it's, I think what's what's cushioned the blow of it, Andy, for Wales is that you know at long last they have qualified for a couple of recent finals. You know they might the, qualify for the next World Cup. They're quite good at football now, Wales. So they all, all is not yeah. lost for them, and they can go to to America. We but, had Spain in two thousand and sixteen, which not Spain, France, sorry, which was yeah. just marvellous and reaching the semis. So yeah, it's not like you know we haven't had a glimpse of kind of oh this could be interesting, you know. And I feel sorry for the players as well, because like, obviously like yeah. in the Albion, we've got eight, we've got eight players going to the World Cup. And I, I've been informed by someone who knows a little bit about football finance this evening that we might actually get two million quid out of it because FIFA have to pay us compensation. Um, Good point. Uh, Per day, uh, I'm just going to look it up now. And uh, da, 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 what are we saying? Um, yeah, we you get about eight and a half grand per player per day for for the clubs starting 14 days before the tournament. So the Albion are actually going to make a few quid out of this money, um, which they wouldn't have to pay if it was a summer tournament. Yeah, and um, and to be honest, I would like to watch the games. Though. I'd like to watch the Ecuador games. I'd like to see how Mitomar gets on. For Japan, I'd even you know, I, yeah, and I'd watch and I'd watch the England games as well. You know, I mean, I would have, but yeah, you know, there's an interest beyond England in this because of the Albion players, and normally I'd be really excited about it. And whilst on a personal level, I am happy for those players. This is going to be for them the biggest moment in their careers. I mean, you know, McAllister could win the World Cup, which would be absolutely brilliant for him. And 
I'm just not going to see it. Um, I have zero enthusiasm for it. I've just ordered a very good book to read during the tournament. Um, <laughs> and I'll, and I just, I just think it's disgusting. And I, how long can FIFA just like get away, get away with this? And like, and Infantino, I mean, Blatter was terrible, but Infantino has been no better. He should know. And I think FIFA should now know that this is, that this is, this is garbage. They get the chance to reset in North America. So Canada, US, Mexico, that's going to be brilliant. That'll be a great, that'll be a great laugh for everybody. They've got the infrastructure's all there. Um, the great venues, great cities. It'll be a brilliant experience. And that will be a celebration of football because football's a brilliant game. This is just something we've got to get out of the way before Christmas. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a celebration. And, you know, I, it would be ironic if England won it. I actually, I, I don't think, I don't think we will win it or get anywhere near close to it. I don't think we're that, I think we've regressed since uh, the European Championships. Uh, but, but for me, there is no football discussion. I'm not interested in it's discussing the football. It's like, it's like me talking about, you know, like talking about Newcastle. It doesn't matter whether they're making good decisions and not being showy with the money. They're, they're using it intelligently and Eddie Howe's doing a great job. It does not matter. It's what's behind it matters. That's important. The fact that this, you know, this, this tournament's been built on corruption and, and it's blatant. It's not even, it's not even in. We know they bought it. Pretty sure the Russians did as well. Uh, the Russians probably did, but the Russians actually are a football country, mm. and people went to. And you know, I had friends who went, who went to the Russian tournament, and it was brilliant, and they really enjoyed meeting, like you know, the Russian people, and they had a great time. And I'm sure that people that go to Qatar will see all the best there is of Qatar and the surrounding um, countries, where they're probably going to have to have their hotels in because they can't really stay in Qatar. Uh, I'm sure they're, they're sure they'll have a, a sure they'll have a good experience as well. Well, but, I think I was going to say but, the other but thing. It's, gar- it's garbage. How they beat out? I understand the beating out America because America's already had it. How they beat out Australia? Yeah, you know that, 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 is, that is a country where FIFA is trying to grow the sport. The A League's been up; it's been down. It has competing sports, you know, cricket, rugby league, rugby union. It's not, you know, it's not the number one sport in Australia, but it's a, but it's a reasonable, reasonably sized market. Certainly in terms of its global reach, because you know the the diaspora is like everywhere. So a World Cup in Australia, a football World Cup in Australia, could be a brilliant boost yeah. to that to yeah. Australia and 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 the region and the region, all the all the all the teams that Australia play in, in that, you know, in that oceanic region um yeah. you know that's 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 world building for the game of football um yeah. in Qatar, not, it's meaningless i mean you know if we could get one if we could get a, you know if we could ever organize like a world cup in the philippines or you know indonesia or something i don't know but i mean trying to find but they, i think fifa should actually fifa should be recruiting um bids from Asian countries, and they should be looking to facilitate those things, not 
opening up a competition as you think well no this is actually a really good idea how can we make this happen so that we can allow this region to have it this is not the way to do it and i know that they go i know that's how they're selling it as it's like you know you're finally given like this particular region a world cup but it's the wrong one and they've done it for and they've not done it for the altruistic reasons and just a further point on it that just makes me sick um, they've they decided for the first and only time, they've gone back from not doing that now, announcing two World Cups at the same time. Obviously, Russia 2018, Qatar 2022, and they were announcing this in 2014. Is it a coincidence that they decided, they happened to decide to do that the one year that they were going to have a shitload of extra building work needed more than the average? Yeah. Uh, maybe that's another point to put in there as well. But I agree with you, Australia has the size, the infrastructure. It's not even overly populated too much for, for the size of country. So you've got all of the scope there to have a tournament there and as you said states have had it before so it made sense that it would go to australia a country where there's a lot of expansion of the of the of the reach of football uh, to be had from that and everyone the can thing is, is it, it, I, I think russ and, and andy i think in the eight nine years since since the awarding of that i mean with every passing day you know the cost of everything goes up the cost of staging these things it's not it's not just a world cup it's you mm. know it's the olympics and everything which is why you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, more and more, it comes down to, you know, who can afford these things. Could Australia even afford to to, to make a bid now? And yeah. it wouldn't just be a case of, well, Australia and New Zealand. Could, could both of them afford to do it? That's, well, that, that's a good point. But I think, you know, I think it goes back to my my point about Brazil. Because like Brazil was massively, the problem with the Brazil World, World Cup was that Brazil's Brazil was massively out of pocket at the end of it. Yeah, we yeah. should be great. We should be grateful as a foot as the football family, the football world. What Brazil has given to us mm. over the years, what Brazil has given to FIFA, and um, you know, FIFA should have been paying for Brazil yeah. to have it. It's the they should, paying, they should have been paying for South Africa to have it, and um, you know, because you know, the football world owes these countries for the sheer joy that they've, they've given us. And they all turn up and, and they sap a huge amount of all of the key area, the, the, the best accommodation, a lot of the space, a lot of the facilities, a lot of the convenience is taken up. People doesn't pay tax. In they don't, yeah, they don't pay tax. Why not? And, and why are they getting such a large cut of all of the decent areas? They, they're taking away some of the the benefits that other uh, the vis- other visitors normal visitors would be able to have it's a greed monster it's a huge behemoth of of greed and corruption it always has been it's got worse and worse and even now with a different regime and infantino they're saying he's sorting stuff out you have to be very very cynically dubious don't you <laughs> about exactly what's happening what what might be happening the transparency the- is lacking in that organization exactly. from I, I, you know it's a netflix tv show it's got a particular editorial line that it wants to lead to like show fifa in its worst light so i mm-hmm. you know the, that that whole thing is caveated yeah it does look from that perspective that you i think got 24 people sitting in a room making a decision and the whole world then has to like please those 24 blokes yeah. Uh, yeah. to and persuade them and like yeah and then, and you know you have to there's yeah and then further down the chain there are there are more people you have to 
buy off or please before you get to the the, the people that actually make the decision. And it's Um, just, it's just, it's a very, it's a very, it appears to me a very untransparent and very undemocratic way of doing things. I think you need, I think you need certain criteria. I think when you, when you hand money to, um, you know, any association, you have to say like, oh, it's for this project and we want to see it delivered. Not like it's for this project and then the money disappears and we never see the outcomes. Um, and th- there seems to be no penalty for, for that, you know, in the documentary. There are examples where money was given for certain things, which, which just never transpired in the end. And mm. it's just, yeah, I, I, you know, and... It's, it's set it's up and right, uh, right for corruption, isn't it? Everything about that, that concept of the, how the bidding process works and how FIFA is set up is absolutely ripe for corruption and bribery. I think this is maybe where football kind of unfortunately suffers by being the world game. Mm-hmm. The one true global game is that, okay, we can sit here and we can be, you know, quite righteous and whatever and right and, and everything. And um, we forget sometimes that huge parts of the world, corruption is just the norm. Yeah. You know, it's not even there to be apologised about. It's just, you know, I, I spent time out in Indonesia before where basically all organisations have fixers who just take care of making sure that everything, you know, the, the, the wheels are oiled. And that's just the norm. It just happens. Yeah. And, you know, FIFA is a representation of that, I yeah. think. You know, you might try and do, th- you know, things right in some parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, it, it just doesn't work like that. And, yeah. And yeah. this is a, this is the thing. It's like part of, you know, FIFA's mission statement is to like, yeah, part of it is to is to spread spread the game, you know, get more people involved, give them more facilities and so all this sort of stuff. And you know, but there should be conditions upon you know, you say, well, but if you but if the world can't like with Qatar, like if the you know, if the world's not invited then you're then they're not invited. It's just like, you know, this is our standard. I mean, yeah, we'd love to have the World Cup in Qatar, it'd be great. But you um you know, you legislate against a large section of this of society. Just 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 be you legislate against people being who they are. Yeah. You know, they I mean it doesn't matter whether there's a law against it or not. Those, you know, people are gay or they're not. But they're gay and you made you made them a criminal simply because of the, who they are. Sorry, not on. You're not getting into our club because yeah. everyone's in our club. Yeah. And if you if you're not willing to accept everybody, then we're not willing to accept you. I just yeah. I just find it just unbelievable how much crap there has been about it. And all the you know, the, the people that have gone gone to work there and build these stadiums and build all the hotels, build the infrastructure. Um, it's, it's been it's been brilliant listening to some of the weasel words of saying, "Well, no one's died building my stadium, but they might have been died building the hotel, housing all the um, execs that are going to come to this World Cup." But just because they like your ground, then it doesn't count. That just mm. shows how you feel about these people, doesn't it? Yeah, we, we should say at this point as well. By the way, um, it's, it's quoting another rival podcast, not that we're rivals as such, but uh, the, the Football Ramble, which is like a na- nation national. Sort of sized uh, pod, and they they do a load of various different things, but they have got a very interesting, serious pod 
a lot of their stuff's a laugh, but this one isn't. It's inside the Qatar World Cup. It's a three-parter. They've had two episodes which were already available. The third one's being um, uploaded apparently on Sunday, on the day of the uh, the tournament opening, um, and it's a look inside all the various dealings of workers' rights, um, how the, the fan parks don't look anywhere near ready enough. Um, they've, they've, for example, they've designed this um, this image of it looking with sweeping grass grassland settings and lots of trees and all this sort of stuff, and it's just a scrubland, <laughs> you know, with yeah. the tournament about to start, for example. But there's a lot of interesting insight. It's Kate Mason, who used to be a Sky Sports um, newsreader, and yeah. um, she's been on the football ramble for a while doing general banter stuff, but she's been doing these serious reports as well. She popped up on something on TV I saw the other day as well. So she's pretty good, and it's really interesting. I recommend everyone to follow up on that. The, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, also about some of the handling, the sports washing element of this whole thing is repulsive, um, but they're not even, as we get closer to the tournament, um, succeeding and steering away from that because we've had two or three incidents which have already, as you said, as if it even needs it, looking behind the scenes, uh, have um, exposed what they are. First of all, um, we've had a former Qatari international who is now an ambassador. I don't know his name. I don't care what his name is, to be honest, who um, described homosexuality as damage to the mind. This is an ambassador for the tournament. So if you've ever got any delusions that they have they're calming down they're seeing a different way of things they are being open for all people any comment like that is grossly insulting to anybody not not notwithstanding people who are homosexual anybody is insulted by that who's got a, a decent normal um perspective on life um that's a disgrace that someone as an ambassador for the tournament said that in the run-up this was about a week ago a few days ago um that's a disgrace. They keep saying just respect our culture, you know, as long as you don't go outlandishly over the top with whatever that whatever they mean, displays of homosexuality in public, drinking excessively, whatever they mean, um, then you know everyone can enjoy it and it's a tournament for all. But it's a well, it's almost this this thing with FIFA with FIFA a couple of weeks ago, wasn't yeah. it? It's almost doing a shot across the bow statement at all of their member countries. It's yeah. like, right, okay now is the time to shut up and focus on football. Yeah, but they're not. And it came across, when you actually read that, when you read the warning, you know, the wording to that, Yeah, you know, that wasn't, there was no friendliness, there was no kind of warmth in that. That was like, you know, a warning. It's like, we are telling you now to shut up. It's an arrogance. It's a dictatorial arrogance of a regime that's used to bossing people around exactly how it wants to go along its way. And what's even more disgusting is if they need any more boots put into them, the government, who are an absolute embarrassment and have been for years, um, James Cleverly, who I can't stand, um, came up with a comment um, before this Damage to the Mind comment came out, uh, talking about how uh, it's a tournament for everyone to enjoy. Uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but he he effectively suggested that people should respect the culture of the place they're going to, which ties in with what you're saying, Andy, about, well, you need to make sure that the country you've decided it's go to can have enough respect. You've you got can't to earn know... respect, haven't you? Exactly. So they're saying respect. He was he was implying that we should just toe the line effectively, and it was badly chosen words uh, that came in for a lot of criticism from the um, LGBTQ community, quite rightly so. Um, uh, as if they needed to put their foot in anything else anymore, he comes up with that comment. Um, that was a disgrace, and. Um, it's going to be interesting. Well, the other thing, by the way, was the Danish TV thing that's broken today as we speak on Wednesday. 
There's a Danish um, crew over there doing a, a report. Don't know exactly what they were talking about, but they had permission to film, uh, obviously, in the run-ups of the tournament. They've all got their permissions and their paperwork sorted. Um, I can't remember the name of the TV company. Oh, TV2 Denmark, I think it's called. So it's presumably one of the major channels in Denmark, I'm assuming. And they they were approached by officials, um, kind of high-ranking officials and some security staff, telling them to stop filming and telling them they couldn't film. How often is that going to happen during this tournament? Uh, how many acts of dissent, which will occur, um, are going to be punished? How severely, how much publicity is there going to be around it? What isn't going to get reported, even though the, 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 the world's eyes are on the tournament? Um, it will also be very interesting to see what the uh, broadcast figures are, particularly as the tournament yeah. goes on and countries start dropping out. You yeah, know, I mean, Andy, you were saying, you know, well, you might want yeah. to see how some of the, the Albion players are doing in certain countries. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. will follow their teams still. I know Andy said he's not going to watch it, and there will be many others the same, I think. Friend of the show, Chris. I think Phil Shelley, actually, a football shirt, I think. Is I'm not watching it at all. I'm not even watching Ecuador. Yeah. 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 But yeah. There will be people doing that, but there will be a lot of people who will still watch the tournament, mainly yeah. to see their... Yeah, of course, their of course country. they will. It's, it's difficult not to, because the World Cup is great. You know, it's... Mm immensely watchable the football is enjoyable the drama the spectacle and you know this i you know i think of, you know from those if you take away everything else that we've been talking about the actual football is probably going to be all right in this tournament yeah um i think i've just got a funny sneaky i just don't care about it i, I, I think the figures will point. drop off significantly once you once teams um once your, your country's team uh your once your country has dropped out of the World Cup, I think the drop-off will be more significant. I think you're right, Spencer. Um, yeah. I think they'll, the figures will be lower already, but they'll they'll drop off a cliff. I think once you're out. So in in Italy, um, they're not in it. But if you if say for example Spain or France get knocked out or England get knocked out, I think there'll be a huge drop-off of people that will no, no longer have any interest in the tournament now that the one thing that was keeping them interested, their own nation's progress, is out of the way. Yeah, particularly it's, with Christmas right around the corner. Yeah, what what exactly? Yeah, what the other thing that's um, going to be interesting? Harry Kane said on a number of occasions he's going to be wearing this rainbow armband. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that FIFA and UEFA keep going about how they don't want to be political. Um, but is that going to be allowed? Are they going to wear it regardless? Or are we going to get fined if we do it? Gareth Bale, talking about Wales, is set to wear it as well. He said he's going to be wearing it regardless of any FIFA decisions on it, which will be very interesting if they decide against it and he does indeed wear it. That That's going to be a very interesting scenario. How many other people are going to make gestures? We should also mention Denmark. Uh, I'd imagine the focus on this TV incident is partly due to the fact that Denmark have been quite vocal about this World Cup, haven't they already? And we've seen that the the kit sponsors who are a Danish company, of course, is it called Kappa? I think no, uh, I've forgotten the name of the of the um, sportswear company. But they've they they've essentially they've um, made a protest of sorts. They produced a kit which has blacked out all of the. Um, all of the logos where the, the country's logo would be, where the sportswear manufacturer's design markings would be. So it is literally just in the various colours they've got. I think they've got red, black, and I think another colour. I can't remember what the other colour is. Um, all of those are basically toned down as if to say our identity isn't allowed, isn't isn't kind of, you know, isn't valued, as if it's kind of like a sort of like a um, camaraderie with those who are, effectively discriminated against in the country so i think it's great that they've done that 
It's going to be interesting. Wouldn't it be marvellous if a really high... Well, I mean, they're all high-profile because they're in World Cup squads as well. Wouldn't it be marvellous if a player actually came out during the tournament out there as well? <laughs> that would be something else, wouldn't it? Yeah, it really I've would. I've got no inside information on, <laughs> you know, that there might be or not. But, I mean, you know, wouldn't that be a statement? Yeah. I think, I think what should have been a statement would have been at least one team saying we refuse to participate in this tournament. From the qualifiers, yeah, I think Norway, Norway, were, Norway, were, Norway were close to doing it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if anyone would have joined them, but, yeah. but I think one of the Australian the Australian team came out and you know put out quite a powerful video where yeah, I've been very where their players expressed some highly commendable sentiments, and uh, and I'm not going to knock them for that, but I think. But really, like, if you really wanted to make a statement and say, OK, we have qualified for this tournament and we've worked flipping hard to qualify for it, here's the thing, we ain't going. That would have been the ultimate statement. We've proved that we're, we're, proved that we're worthy of it. But, but we have no respect for this, tour- for this tournament. We have respect for ourselves and we have respect for other people. We are not going to this tournament. You want to make a message that would have sent shockwaves. And, like, you know, it's not for me to, like, you know, tell other people what to do but if you really want to make a statement and have an impact the thing is that you know australia again australia one of these countries they you know they 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 don't qualify for these tournaments that often it's a big deal it's it's a big deal for the players i i get it i mean i i really i really really i'm not sure that australia would have would have made that difference though i think it needed one of the big Western European country. I think if any team had done it, it would have made it would have made a big statement. Um, and I think, you know, you, you go through the qualifying process and you get there and you just say, well, yeah, we're happy that we've we've proven that we're good enough to be there, we're worthy. But yeah, not for us. This is not a World Cup that we want to be a part of. Hmm. Um, and I that's easy for me to say here from my you know, from my comfortable seat in my home. I'm not I'm not a football player. I'm not being you know I don't have anything to lose from that. But but I but think but I think FIFA FIFA needs to be football needs football needs to get a grip of itself because it is the people's game. Hmm. All you need to play it is one ball and, and as in jumpers for goalposts. And, and, that, and that's it, and that's it, and that's that is that's why it's the world's most popular sport. And yet, the people that run it just treat the people that love the game with utter contempt. And yeah. this is the this is the biggest expression of that contempt, yeah. in my opinion. And I, you know, and I, you know, I love the World Cup. I'm not. I thought I might crack and start watching it at some point. Um, you know, because I've, I've been saying for, for for a long time I'm not going to be watching it, and I was thinking, well, I'll probably give in after like a week or so because you know it's on and mm. you know, football's brilliant. But no, forget it. I'm not watching one second of it. <laughs> fair play, absolutely fair play to you as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I was just going to say, uh, you mentioned Egypt earlier, Andy, and Egypt's a part of a a collective bid, a rather eclectic one, um, which I think, Peter, you were going to make a comment on uh, a while back. Um, also, we should mention Saudi Arabia are part of a future bid uh, as well. Same bid, you isn't know, it? As if it could get any worse. It's the it same bid, is it? It's Egypt, Saudi Arabia and Greece, which is yeah. a, uh, 
It's a bit bizarre to start with. <laughs> um, it makes sense that it would be a collective bid if those three nations are going for it, because they'd be better able to accommodate it. But it's not geographically attached as such, even though it's not a million miles away. But <laughs> obviously, the, there's, there's two issues with that. One, it just doesn't seem to make sense as a cohesive bid. And, and two, Saudi Arabia are involved in that bid. That, to me, is a as big or bigger issue than Qatar. Um, it's every bit as objectionable. Uh, it's a country that sports washing its way through with Newcastle now. But it's not actually Saudi Arabia bidding; it's PIF instead, so it's okay. And as if they couldn't be more contemptible, they, you know, you look at Newcastle. They've got this. They've got this kit that is the Saudi Arabia home kit as one of the away kits for Newcastle. So they're sticking their fingers up to people. They're not. They're not. But being also, Newcastle fans like to give one nil to the Saudi boys as well, which is up there with as classy a thing as you could possibly think. Yeah. Like. That's for a future potential moan. But I think we've covered most of what we wanted to talk about. We will go on and talk about more of this as the tournament goes on. We, we, we will do some pods over the World Cup period, one or two at least, um, where I'm sure um, there will be other incidents like this Danish TV thing that's happened today. I'm going to be interested with how many dissenting voices there are, both in terms of uh, people who are representing in one form or another um, players, media, uh, whatever else is going on in an official sense, but also in terms of fans. There was also this thing, of course, where they apparently, the Qataris have paid, there's rumours that they've paid 40 English fans um, flight accommodation in order to go over there to try and put on a good face, but also to report back on any dissent they're hearing and to uh, probably effectively lie about how great everything is, um, which is... If true, unbelievable. unbelievable. Just like, it, I mean, it is, it is. This thing is contemptible, and it's it's not about football. This is no. not a football tournament. No. Well, I'm going to pick you up on Andy. The most depressing thing is is actually really believable. I, I don't regard. Oh, well, it yes, I stand corrected, Peter. <laughs> the most depressing thing is it's completely what I'd expect from Qatar and FIFA and and all that. You know, it's it's very believable. And yeah, I mean, the, the depressing thing is that who are these idiots taking their money? I mean, seriously, if you yeah. can't afford to go and don't go, don't go taking money from to basically kind of potentially grasp people up for complaining about the World Cup being guitar or something. So, yeah, pathetic. But it well, is well, eminently believable. The whole thing's so, so false and fake and pathetic that they'll do anything to try and give a good impression to, you know, to every, you know everything's amazing there. Yeah. What I would have loved is for us to have, uh, I say us, the, the rest of the world, to have, well, FIFA really, to have um, withdrawn their bid as soon as they said, oh, no, we can't do it in the yeah. summer. It's not practical. Well, we yeah. all knew that. Why, yeah, It was all part of the narrative they were planning to play out, wasn't it? But as soon as it came to going, oh, no, we're going to have to do it in the winter, they should say, sorry, that wasn't the conditions of the, of the yeah. bid. You're out. Um, maybe reconvene, have a think for a future one, join up with some other nations, maybe get your human rights in order, um, <laughs> etc. But you're not doing this tournament because you haven't done it when you said you were going to do it. And therefore it goes to another country that's willing and able to. to but of course, they missed that trick because they never planned to use that trick. They, they were always fully on board with it. And it's repulsive. It's disgusting. When all the corruption stuff was happening around about that time, and there was all the, the scandals coming out about the various people, that fat American guy with the beard, and there was the, I can't remember his name, some ridiculous... Oh, um... Blake? Blake no, no. Chuck Blazer. Chuck Blazer. Chuck Warner. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's that guy who looks like um, he looks like Jennifer Saunders when she had one of those fat suits on, and French and Saunders breaking through walls on on middle class houses i don't know if you remember the, the old um, sitcom scenes 
And um, there was a, a South American head of um, uh, whatever it's called, uh, Comnable, isn't it? I think. Um, who you, look, you saw him on the pitch presenting one of the Copper Americas or something, and you think as soon as you looked at him, you thought he's corrupt. Just his face alone. <laughs> You knew, you just knew. And sure enough, guess who gets involved in a part of the scandal? That bloke, um, the Jennifer Saunders fat suit guy. Unbelievable. Um, and it's going on. It will carry on going on. What I was saying at the time is all of the major nations should withdraw from FIFA and form a separate uh, global body and just say, well, you know, if you can't run the, com- uh, the, the, the whole uh, global tournaments properly, we'll just have an alternative tournament. We'll call it something. I would go as far as saying, actually, the next kind of four or five weeks will determine the path of football for a long, long time. If the broadcast doesn't work, if there are major protests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the viewing figures are low. Only that will really force FIFA and some of these countries into thinking, oh, you know what, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, If if it goes well, if it goes well, we're doomed. Yeah. (laughs) We know... Football needs this tournament to fail. Yep, I concur. Um, football mm. needs this this tournament to fail. This it would be it would be a disaster if this wasn't a disaster because it would just well you know it would suck all the Oh, job. Andy, I love that quote. Can I steal that? I might yes. steal that from you. I really hope it would be a disaster if this wasn't. It. Oh, I love that. I really hope Qatar get absolutely hammered every game as well, just to show yeah. what a farce it is that they're in it. In especially, especially in the first game, exactly yeah. against Brighton and Just to show what a joke it is, they've qualified when they've never qualified or got, even got close to qualifying before, and yeah. they've only qualified. Yeah, don't they? You know, Gripper Stenson grabs them round the neck and puts their head down the toilet. Yeah, I mean they they've manufactured their league and naturalised a load of foreigners to play in the. In order to get a, a decent enough team, or what they think is a decent enough team, they really deserve to fail on every level, don't they? I'm afraid, and I really there's literally nothing that's even half acceptable about that whole thing. It's no. all disgusting. It's Nothing's all... going to change. No minds or key minds are going to be changed by this tournament. No. No, nothing's going to be. No, nobody's uh, perspectives are going to be expanded. Uh, the people who are running this aren't going to change their views at all. And unless, unless, as Andy says, it, it fails. Unless it fails. And then maybe there's just some glimmer of hope then. What do you but define yeah. failure? Like empty stadiums sort of thing? Is that like... I, I think, Paul, stadium, I, think, I think the sort of things that are going to, that, that will harm it will be the, the logistics of it, the, uh, you know, the, the moving fans around, around, around the games uh, the standard of accommodation, particularly for those who are actually staying in Qatar in those what appears to be like, you know, yeah, just sheds and tents and things like that. I think people who are going to be staying in Dubai will probably have quite a nice time and they just get bussed in or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, the, it'll, be, it'll be things like that. It won't be like the moral and ethics of it that will bring it down it'll be the the nitty-gritty of them of, of the organization not actually being yeah. not not working out as well as they'd hoped i think it's going to be those sort of technical reasons which will end up bringing it down and people will be saying oh it wasn't it was you know it wasn't that great it didn't really feel like a football tournament or, except the english force the english fans who've been paid and they'll be going it was brilliant you know so yeah so i don't know i mean it, 
they've certainly got enough money behind it to make it work. Um, whether they got the note, you know, whether they got no, you know, we're going to find out. But I'm pretty, I really, yeah, I really hope it's a, just a, an embarrassing failure for me. The, yeah, who wins it is of no consequence to me. I mean, I hope all the players go there. I, yeah, I wish, I wish them all. Yeah, I wish them all well. I, yeah, I hope England do well. Hope all the Albion players do well. Um, and come back. Yeah, I don't really want to rain on their parade. But, you know, it's, that's their job. That's what they do. But, but for the good of the game, this needs to be a bad tournament. I think the football will be the, the football will be by far and away the best part of it. I think the football yeah. will end up being pretty well, good. There is also the upside that if you want to go over to the tournament, you are allowed to drink. There's there are sanctioned areas where you can do so um, if you can find enough space to do it. Um, but you can drink um, Heineken Agua de Urine um, for eleven pounds ninety a pint, apparently. So, oh no, not a pint. Sorry, for five hundred milliliter bottles, um, eleven pounds ninety. So that's a bargain on top of your excessively expensive hotels and everything else and it's, not far, it's not far off that in cardiff now Christ. <laughs> yeah uh, at least you have to drink all year round there yeah we go, we go drinking in brighton russ that's not that much yeah that's true much. that's true that's true <laughs> well peter and i are going to watch the ecuador game um purely because it's against guitar we would particularly make a point of going to watch that one uh, not in guitar i hasten to add just down the pub but um apart from that i think you know We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with the tournament. We'll have further discussions. we better wrap this one up, though. But, Sam, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Andy Bass, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to have you back on the on the programme, Spencer, Spencer Vignes. Always a pleasure, never a chore. And don't forget that book, everybody, Eric and Dave, A, Life, a Lifetime of Football and Friendship by Pitch Yeah, as, as, as Andy said, forget the World Cup, read Eric and Dave. Yes, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm spending the World Cup with Eric and Dave. It's the winter anyway. Sit inside with a book. You don't want to sit outside with beers in a fan park, do you? And Peter, as always, thank you. And um, stand or fall. Up the Albion. Albion. Up the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.